Welcome back to another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. In today's episode, we discuss a wide range of topics, including resting metabolic rate, standing desks, artificial sweeteners, electromyography, sleep, plant-based proteins, and much more. Then, to close out the episode, Greg is back with even more cooking tips. As always, thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. This is your host, Eric Trexler, and today I'm joined by a very special guest host named Greg Knuckles. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for joining me. This is a big day for us, for all of our listeners. It's the day before Valentine's Day. Um, Do they celebrate that internationally? That's probably just an American thing, right? I really don't know. We should have checked on that. If you're if you're an international listener residing outside of the United States, maybe start the trend. You know, February fourteenth every year. Now it's Valentine's Day wherever you happen to be. Um, but but it is an important day, and, and we're really glad. I'm sure most people listening right now have the lights dimmed down a little bit, bottle of wine chilling, you and your significant other, and we're really happy that we could accompany you as the kind of musical backdrop for that. Yeah, we recognize that probably 80% of our listeners are going to be listening to this episode of the podcast either immediately before or during coitus. Uh, That being the case, we're going to attempt to avoid any subjects that could, um, you know, potentially ruin the mood and mess with your Valentine's Day celebrations. Yeah, every topic is going to be either neutral to sexy, but we're not going to go the other direction. Correct. Yeah. So um, anyway, like I said, it's just a huge honor to be part of that process with, with all of our listeners. So yeah, and, and we're really excited about what we have keyed up. I'm going to start with feats of strength like normal, have a little Q&A segment, have a research roundup, uh, and then a really, really cool segment on how to know if your bowel movements are, uh, <laughs> are, are proper and healthy or not. Um, so all very Valentine's Day appropriate topics. I wish you wouldn't say that because that, that's not true, but it's a very, that's a very realistic thing that we might do. So I don't want you to get people's hopes up. That segment is not coming. I mean, it was a joke because you just said, or we just said, not going to do anything that would ruin the mood. Oh, I get that. And joke. I mean, that could heighten the mood for some people. We don't kink okay. shame on the <laughs> Stronger by Science podcast. Let, let's just move forward. Uh, I believe you've got some feats of strength. I do. Uh, so... Starting with the big one, which I assume everyone's seen by this point, uh, Jamal Browner, who we've talked about on the podcast before, um, exceptional deadlifter, had put up big numbers, but not world record numbers in meets before, largely because he had grip issues, but had pulled just outrageous weights with straps in the gym. Uh, He has apparently gotten his grip issues either all or mostly sorted out. Uh, I think he's pulled something over a thousand in the gym before, which is wild at 242. Um, but he put up a number very, very close to that on the platform recently. He pulled 440 and a half kilos, which is 971 pounds in the 110 kilo class or the 242 pound class. Uh, that actually chips Yuri Belkin's world record, uh, which was previously 440 kilos. And if you look at the video of this, it looked easy. Um, it looked like there was plenty more in the tank. I don't think Browner is much of a grinder, um, but it could very well be that he still has like some grip issues and, you know, maybe he's good for over a thousand, but like nine seventies, just kind of the limit of his hook grip at the moment. Um, but regardless, takes that world record, did it in style. 
Um, so congrats to him for for finally like putting the type of number on a platform that he has looked to to be capable of for a long time now. Uh, a little bit less covered was he also took the without wraps world record total in the weight class in the same meet. Uh, he totaled 990 kilos or 2182. So very, very good performance all around. Uh, and congrats to him. Moving on, someone else we've talked about on the podcast before was Kevin Oak. Um, so I think last, maybe like last September, October, thereabouts, uh, he broke Amit Sapir's world record um, for the no wraps squat in the 242 or 110 kilo class. Uh, he squatted 380 kilos then. He added 10 kilos to his own world record, squatted 390 or 859 pounds, um, which is also just wild. That's that's such a big number. Uh Congrats to him. Moving on to probably the other recent feat of strength that most people are probably aware of by this point, um, and moving out of powerlifting, Hapthor Bjornsson, Thor, the mountain from Game of Thrones, if you don't follow Strongman, um, he pulled 455 kilos or 1,003 pounds for a smooth double in the gym. Um, Slight point of contention there is he used... What's it called? I, I think it's called the Elephant Bar. Uh, it's like a rogue specialty bar, which is a little bit whippier than a standard barbell. Um, I think he claims that it it's not really giving him anything. Other people are saying like, ah, no, he's not going to pull this on a standard competition bar. Uh, I think he's planning on taking a crack at Eddie Hall's 500 kilo deadlift record soon. So, uh, you know, we'll see how that shakes down. But it's now looking like Two people have very, very legitimate shots at pulling 500 kilos. We talked about uh, Ivan Makarov last year. Uh, Russian strongman came very, very close to pulling 501. Uh, Thor pulling 455 for a double seems to be pretty close to that area now as well. Um, so yeah, who knows? We may We may see another one or two 500 kilo deadlifters in the next calendar year. Don't know if it's going to happen or not, but I would love to see it. Yeah, I actually saw this one. Uh, the Stronger by our, our dietitian at Stronger by Science, Greg Schultz. He, he made me uh, watch the video here. Honestly, it looked like he had a, it looked like he had five in him. Right, like yeah. the set of two. It was pretty wild, dude. Yeah, he um, the the first one looked like it, it was never in doubt, but it looked like he was putting effort into it. And then the second one was smooth as butter. Yeah, like he at least had a third. Oh, oh, easy, easy, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, there have been, uh, what, maybe like six people pull over a thousand in some way, shape, or form before. Um, I think he and Eddie Hall and maybe Makarov are the only ones I've ever seen pull multiple reps at over a thousand. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's it's wild. Uh, moving on, Casey Romero, which I, I, I feel like... I may not follow powerlifting quite closely enough because I hadn't heard of her. Um, looked her up on open powerlifting. She's never been like a world record level lifter, but she's been quite good for a few years now. Uh, but this was the first I heard of her. Uh, posted a training lift on Instagram of pulling uh, 625 pounds or 283 kilos. Um, that is the heaviest 
raw deadlift by a female lifter ever on video, as far as I'm aware. Um, if you add equip lifters into the mix, Becca Swanson, who is a legendary power lifter that I feel like not enough people know about anymore because she competed in gear and now people don't pay attention to multiply that much anymore. Uh, she pulled 695, I'm pretty sure, at super heavy in multiply, um, which is wild. And most people I've talked to who who debt like who compete in multiply say they don't really get that much for the deadlift like it's a, it's a big help for the squat and bench but not quite as much for the deadlift um so becca got 695 back in the day um but casey romero pulling 625 is is crazy i'm pretty sure the highest ever in competition is 615 um and of note Casey Romero, her last meet, she competed at super heavyweight, but I kind of think the super heavyweight class for female lifters is dumb because uh, she weighed in at 94.4 kilos, which is 208 pounds. And like, I don't know. I kind of feel like that shouldn't be lumped into the super heavyweight class uh, for the IPF. The top weight capped class is 84 for non IPF feds. It's 90 kilos. Um, and I think that that's, I think that's kind of a bullshit top weight capped class. Because uh, if you look at like the difference between kind of the average body weight of males and the top weight capped class, which is 120 in IPF and its affiliates and 140 in other feds, that's that's a lot further from the average weight of a typical male than 84 or 90 kilos is away from the average weight of a typical female. So I kind of feel like there should maybe be like a 100 or a 105 kilo class for females before the supers. Um, but regardless, I mean, even competing as a super, that's uh, the biggest raw deadlift any female has put up on video that I'm aware of. Um, I think the next highest is 615. Of note, she used straps. Uh, she admitted in her Instagram caption that she gets quite a bit out of them. I think her heaviest deadlift in a meet so far is 540 or 245 kilos. Um, but I mean, even with straps, like, I mean, anyone pulling, anyone pulling 600 plus in the neighborhood of 200 pounds is fucking strong. Um, and a female doing that, even more impressive. And for that to be the heaviest... <laughs> Raw female deadlift of all time. Even more impressive. Go check that out. Super, super cool. Um, moving on to something that's less surprising. Seems to be essentially an inevitability at this point. Uh, Daiki Kadama competed recently. Uh, Japanese bench press specialist. He broke his own world record in the 74 kilo class. He benched 226 at 74, which is 498 at a body weight of like 163, 164. He previously held the record at 225 kilos or what is that? 795, 796. Um, I did not watch the footage of this meet. Uh, I saw that he got red lighted on his third attempt at 230 because his hands were set too wide. I don't know whether he took that attempt, got it, and then got red lights for his grip being too wide or whether they just didn't let him take the attempt. Um, but yeah, he continues to break his own world record. Seems like he does pretty much every time he competes. Uh, just outrageously strong at that body weight. And then last thing, uh, another bench feat. So um, Johnny Harris, 
who has benched, I believe, 658 in a meet, um, or 297.5 kilos. Uh, he recently posted a gym lift of a 700-pound bench. Uh, hasn't done it in a meet yet. It's hard to tell from the angle. Looks like his butt maybe came up. I don't give a shit. It's 700 pounds. Touched his chest. Locked it out. Like, as far as I'm concerned, got 700 pounds on the bar, and you do it. It's fucking cool, no matter how it looks. Um, so the noteworthy thing about that is, even counting gym lifts, he's now only, I believe, the sixth person ever to bench over 700, and uh, is is pretty comfortably the lightest. So I don't know what his body weight is now. He competed in November, and as of November, his body weight was 287.7 pounds, which is 130 and a half kilos. The next lightest person to ever bench 700 was Scott Mendelson uh, at a body weight of 140 kilos or 308 pounds. Um, so he's he's like 10 kilos lighter than the next person to ever put up that number. Uh, I mean, when I got into the sport, I'm pretty sure Scott Mendelson and James Henderson were the only people who'd ever benched 700, period. Um, and Scott was wild in that he did it in the 308 class. And people were talking like, is, is well, one, is anyone ever going to bench 700 again? They clearly have. Uh, but then two, is anyone ever going to be able to do that at a body weight below 300? Uh, Johnny Harris, at least at this point, has done it in the gym. We'll see if he can put it on the platform, but congrats to him. Very, very big bench. Uh, very cool stuff. All right. Very nice. So moving on, we've got uh, a nice round of Q&A questions coming up here. And the first one is directed at me. This one's actually from Greg Schultz. Oh, sweet. His second honorable mention of the day. I, I think that gets you an honorary RD. I, I believe so. Yeah. Um so, uh, you want to go ahead and read me in here? Yeah, so Greg Schiltz asks Eric, Hey Eric, can you cover the parentheses in, close parentheses, accuracies of online RMR calculators on the podcast? Yeah, and so I was talking to the other Greg, Greg Schultz, about this, and uh, it's something he gets a lot of questions about from clients and people on the internet. Uh, people seem to be really interested in trying to get an estimate of what their resting metabolic rate is. And so I will address, you know, exactly how accurate or inaccurate some of those equations are. Uh, but my practical take-home point is, uh, well, I'll get to it when we cross that bridge. So there's two studies I want to focus on here. The first one, uh, the uh, the author's last name is spelled J-A-G-I-M. I should know how to say Andrew's last name. I'm 90% sure it's Jagum. I didn't know, you know how sometimes people will be like Yager or something? I yeah. didn't know if it was like that soft J. So I, I was on the podcast that he had, it was him and Andy Askow, um, and I asked him how to pronounce his name, so I feel even worse for not being positive, yeah. but I'm 99% sure I asked him, and it was just Jagum. No, he does cool stuff, and I, man, I'm almost certain I've met him at a conference, and I know I've interacted with him online, so it's just embarrassing that I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but like, we just mispronounce everything and we're we're moving forward. Um, so he did a nice study looking at several of these equations and basically just, you know, measuring resting metabolic rate and seeing essentially how close do these equations get. And uh, they, they looked at males and females separately uh, in their analysis. 
And there's a few different ways you can look at, at trying to assess what kind of error these equations are giving you. And so you might be uh, tempted to look at just the simplest thing, right? So we got a sample of people and we could just look at what were the averages? What was the average resting metabolic rate measured and what was the average rate predicted and how different are those averages? But it's really not a great way of looking at it. And so a painfully basic example is, Greg, let's say you and I get our get our metabolic rate tested and let's say that the equation overestimates mine by 300 and it underestimates yours by 300. Well, it basically would say like, oh, cool, this equation works pretty well. On average, it gets you right there. Right, yeah. Right, so what what we look at with these types of studies, my favorite metric is called the root mean square error. And so it's exactly what it sounds like. We're looking at the error or the difference between the measured and the predicted value. And what we do is we square those values, we take the mean of those squares, and then we take the square root. And what that does is... It can account for for just the fact that it was a bad predictor, whether or not it over or underestimated. It can give us a better idea of, generally speaking, how off is this thing? How much does that differ from just the absolute value of the average error? Or like like the, the average of the absolute values of the errors? Like, I, I know squaring it makes everything positive and then square rooting again. So it... it, it essentially accomplish accomplishes something similar but like just in terms of does that inflate or deflate the error just relative to absolute values i don't know i have to look into it off, the, off the top of my head i'm not sure it should be similar yeah for sure but I mean, it, it's getting at the same thing regardless right yeah so so the idea is we want to get an idea of on average approximately how off are these estimates and so when you look at the the root mean square error values for the males in this study they're generally in the 300 to 400 range. So they, they looked at like, what is that, five different equations there. The lowest error was 284 calories. The highest was 466. So, I mean, when we're talking about a, a difference of 300 calories, plus or minus, that, that's a pretty sizable difference. When they looked at their, the females in their sample, um, the, the lowest root mean square error was 110 calories per day for a metabolic rate, and the highest was 228. So it would look at surface value like there's a big difference between men and women. Uh, but when you express that as a percent of metabolic rate, um, it was basically off uh, for the males by, you know, 12 to 19 percent. So basically scaling it to their their overall metabolic rate um, and in the females, it was a little bit lower, but not not by a ton. It was like seven to 15 percent. Now, there was another study by Grant Tinsley um, and y- if you listen to the show, you know I'm a big fan of Grant. He's a good friend. He does really cool, uh, really cool research. I feel like I always bring up his studies because he always studies the stuff that I would want to study. You know, <laughs> so um, anyway, so he did a similar study. This is uh, his analysis. The table I'm looking at here is just combining the males and females. I, I'm almost certain he did separate it out, but I just went for the combined table. And uh, this was from 27 total participants. But looking through it on average, again, uh, he looked at the root mean square error. In this paper, it was called total error. But if you look in the methods, it was an equivalent uh, uh, metric. And basically, it was right around the same area. It was in the, uh, you know, 200 to 300 range, which given the fact that it's a combined sample of males and females, puts it on pretty similar terms with, with the previous study. So... 
overall, it looks like these equations, generally speaking, tend to get you within a few hundred calories, but I wouldn't look at them as being much more precise than that. Um, and so what was interesting was I saw in, uh, in Grant's study, he even compared three different uh, machines for measuring metabolic rate. And the, uh, the root mean square errors for those compared to, they, they use the, the Parvometics uh, cart as like the, you know, the, the standard to which they compared, which makes sense. Um, but he used two other different pieces of equipment and they differed by 175 calories. And the other one was like 557 calories different. Holy shit. Which is, that's a lot. (laughs) And so that's a ton. Yeah. I mean, I think that did worse than any of the prediction equations. So like even the worst predictive equation had a lower root mean square error than that device. Yeah. Than one of the lesser metabolic carts. Yeah. And so that's something to keep in mind. Like if you're just going and like somebody at the gym, like, grabs this thing in the back of the personal training office and says, hey, blow into this. It's going to tell us your metabolic rate. Holy shit. That other metabolic cart was trash. Yeah, they, it they also good. just looked at correlations um, to see like how well the prediction equations and like the other metabolic carts, like whether they were significantly associated with uh, w- with what you were getting from the Parvo. And all of the other ones were, which is what you'd expect. Uh, you would expect, you know, very strong associations there. So, like, R values all 0.89 or above. P values less than 0.000... Is that three or four O's? Whatever. That's, that's three O's. Yeah, less than 0.0001. And then for... What is that? Breezing? I've never heard of that cart. Maybe there's a reason for that, Greg. <laughs> yeah, well, the the correlation coefficient is 0.28, and it's not a significant association. Yeah. Which, like, unless it's just fucking trash, you you should expect a significant association. Well, yeah, so the, the that's, R... That's outrageous. The R-squared value is 0.08, <laughs> so... Your your measurement on that device oh. accounts for eight percent of the variance in the actual uh, comparative measure. Th- that's that's alarmingly bad. That, yeah, that's not good. <laughs> so um, the the moral of the story here is, you know, using all these various equations, certainly they differ to some extent, but you're really only using them to get you within a few hundred calories. And for most people, I think they're hoping and essentially counting on a greater a greater uh, magnitude of precision than that. I think a lot of people have uh, excessive confidence in the number they get from some of these equations. Now, I don't want to badmouth the concept of using these equations. They should get you into a pretty close range, and that's great, and that's what they're used for. But at that point, you got to let you got to let your observations take over. So, um, you know, if you're coaching somebody through a weight loss program and they're like, where should I start? In many cases, this is your best starting point of trying to get some idea of resting metabolic rate. Then you use a multiplier uh, to try to get an estimate of their energy expenditure, you know, their non-resting energy expenditure. And that's just your starting point, and then you go from there. But but you know, if you're listening, don't get uh, don't get too caught up on the d- don't overestimate the precision uh, from these equations because they're probably just going to get you in the ballpark again. These these root mean square error values are are generally in the three hundred ish range, give or take. 
Um, but I think the more important take home point that I kind of alluded to uh, before I started here, I just don't think resting metabolic rate is particularly interesting. And the reason I say that is because it's not particularly malleable. So we, we could get an idea of what it is and there's really not much we can do with it. Um, you know, th- there's really nothing you can do to shape it and to change it in the way you want. I mean, certainly it'll go down if you starve yourself, um, but that's not really useful information for anybody. Um, so I try not to get too bogged down in what sometimes I'll have people who say, like, I think I have metabolic adaptation. I'm going to go get my resting metabolic rate checked. Um, and that's okay. But uh, first of all, if we get that information, there's really not much we can do with it. And more importantly, if, if we're talking about metabolic adaptation, we're much more interested in non-resting components of energy expenditure. So the studies looking at people that are metabolically adapted in an unfavorable way within the context of weight loss, we find that their resting metabolic rate isn't that different than normal if they're eating at energy balance when they're measured. Uh, but the real, uh, the brunt of that adaptation is happening to non-resting uh, aspects of metabolic rate. So the problem is if you think you uh, are are like quite metabolically adapted and you want to troubleshoot it, even getting that number is not a particularly helpful thing to get. So um, so I answered the question directly, but then the, the caveat is I don't think it's that important. And really, you shouldn't be using these uh, these predictive equations for anything other than getting a starting point if you have literally no idea how much energy a person's spending in a given day. Okay, moving on. So uh, there was a Barbalo study. Actually, I think here here's I'm going to flex a little bit. I think that's actually probably pronounced Barbalio. Sure. Um, I I did two weeks of learning Portuguese using that little app with a little owl. Duolingo. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that H is pronounced as a Y, and if that's true, that should forgive me for all of my mispronunciations up to this point on the show. Um, but anyway, so they had a study that came out looking at the back squat versus the hip thrust. There have been a lot of people commenting on it, and you had a bit of a, a methodological tidbit to share on that, I believe. Uh, kind of. Yeah. So not gonna, not gonna pin this question on anyone in particular, because on our Q and a forum, there were like seven people who asked about this study. Um, so just generally responding to all of them. Uh, so a study was recently published titled back squat versus hip thrust, uh, back squat versus hip thrust resistance training programs in well-trained women by I'm, I'm saying Barbalo. I mean, do you can do that at your own peril. Sure. Uh, anyway, so this is a study that has caused a reasonable amount of... Is controversy the right word? Maybe controversy is the right word. There's been a lot of ink spilled about it uh, within the fitness industry in the, in the past couple of weeks. And if I only cared about growing this media empire and getting clicks to the podcast at all costs and was essentially more of a sellout. I would also have hot takes to share about this study right now. Um, I feel pretty confident saying I am going to talk about it more at some point, but this is not the appropriate time. However, I do think that there's hopefully a somewhat interesting and maybe useful point that I can kind of pull out of all of this. Uh, and it's essentially 
why were people surprised by the results of the study in the first place? So the key result of the study that most people have been talking about is that, um, according to the data presented in the study, uh, squats caused more glute growth than hip thrusts did. Um, In pretty well-trained women, actually quite well-trained women for a research sample, um, pre-training they were squatting about 200 pounds ass to grass, Uh, They specified to a knee angle of 140 degrees, which is pretty fucking deep. Um, So that's, you know, those are pretty well-trained women. Um, And they had them trained for, I believe, 10 weeks. One group only doing squats, the the other group only doing hip thrusts. And the group that squatted, uh, according to the results of the study, had more glute growth or a larger increase in glute thickness as assessed by ultrasound. And so that was, like I said, pretty surprising to a lot of people. Um, One of the reasons why is because there had been previous EMG research showing that um, peak and mean EMG of the gluteus maximus was higher in the hip thrust than in the back squat. Um, And so people took that to then infer that, um, that hip thrust would cause more glute growth than back squats would. So I kind of want to back up and just generally talk about when I personally think EMG is useful versus not uh, in, in like a practical sense. So there's a lot of times where where it's useful just if you're interested in mechanistic research. But in terms of, you know, you're a lifter, you're a coach, you come across a study that uses EMG. How much stock should you put in it when reading the results of that study? Um, so, yeah, just kind of want to talk about that for a little bit. So, essentially, EMG uh, stands for electromyography, um, and what you do is you use electrodes to measure the electrical activity within a target muscle. And so, electrical activity is not, it's not one-to-one the same thing as muscle activation or motor unit recruitment, but it is strongly associated with muscle activation, motor unit recruitment. Muscle activation is then related to tension, and tension is one of the key drivers and certainly the key initiator of muscle growth. Um, So people will often use EMG research to justify exercise selection uh, and act as if it's like an A to B type thing of we're measuring muscle activation and therefore tension and therefore the thing with higher EMG readings is going to cause more muscle growth, as if it's just an A to B thing. But really, it's more like EMG is A, and then motor unit recruitment would be B, and then tension would be C, and then actual growth would be D when filtered through like range of motion and biomechanics and other things. So it's kind of like making an A to E jump, um, which, <laughs> which is always going to be a little bit dangerous for any sort of proxy measure. Um, but I think it's it's more or less justifiable to do that in some situations rather than others. So when I think you can, you can use EMG at least as like weak evidence for you know coming up with ideas about exercise selection uh, is when you don't have longitudinal research actually assessing different exercises or different techniques on muscle growth. But you do have EMG research for two biomechanically similar movements. So by that, what I mean is uh, to this point, unless I'm mistaken, there's still not any research 
comparing, say, tricep growth in a wide grip versus a close grip bench press. However, those are two biomechanically similar movements, um, and it's not really worth digging into all of those studies because it's, it's it's actually fairly equivocal if you look at the research that's out there uh, looking at triceps, EMG, and close grip versus wide grip bench press. But let's just assume that <laughs> that those studies do show greater triceps EMG in the close grip bench press. Uh, that combined with the fact that you're dealing with a longer elbow range of motion, you could say like, hey, you know, we don't have longitudinal research on this, but we have some EMG data showing eh, maybe close grip bench is a little bit better. Um, we see that there's also a longer joint range of motion, which is generally good. Uh, and, you know, practical experience tends to indicate that, you know, people who are big and strong who are trying to press for triceps growth often recommend close grip bench press. So it kind of has some like quote unquote in the trenches support, all of that put together, you know, would seem to indicate maybe close grip is a better option here. Um, so it's not relying solely on EMG and you're dealing with two very biomechanically similar movements in this particular case, when you're talking about a squat versus a hip thrust, I don't necessarily think you can use EMG to make that comparison or at least make it well, because they're just two very biomechanically dissimilar movements. Um, so different muscles have different EMG angle curves. So if you've learned biomechanics, you may have heard about various muscles like length tension curves or different joints like torque angle curves. There's also an EMG angle curve. So essentially, like you can get higher EMG readings at certain muscles at certain lengths versus others. Um, and like the muscle length where you get peak EMG isn't you, you can't necessarily assume that that's also the place where you get peak motor unit recruitment uh, or certainly like peak tension. And so, for example, in the squat, um, you get peak glute EMG kind of like in the mid range of the exercise. So glute EMG is actually very, very low at the very bottom of a squat kind of rises peaks somewhere around the sticking point and then it's quite low by lockout uh, with the hip thrust on the other hand it's kind of low-ish at the start of a hip thrust and then is very very high like as your hips lock out in a hip thrust and I don't know the EMG angle curve or the EMG length relationship of the glutes right off the top of my head um, Brett Contreras would probably be a better person to ask about that but I'm pretty sure you do get peak glute EMG in like a, a fully extended hip position. So all else being equal, if squats and hip thrusts were, say, getting... So if you were stressing the glutes as hard as you possibly could in the sticking point of a squat and as hard as you possibly could at the lockout of a hip extension, muscular tension very well may be comparable but EMG would still be higher at the lockout of a hip thrust just because like the electrical activity you see in a muscle differs based on what joint angle you're dealing with. Um, and so, you know, not to pick on the squat and hip thrust too much, but that's, that's a fairly generalizable principle. If you're comparing two very, very different exercises, uh, you could just be dealing with kind of like peak EMG for that exercise at a point in the like, muscle length EMG relationship associated with higher or lower EMG. And so like, for example, um, if you were trying to, to say like, Hey, 
I want to pick out an exercise for, I don't know, delt growth. Uh, and I'm going to compare, like, I'm going to look at a study with like lateral raises versus shoulder press. I don't know if a study like that exists, but if it did, I wouldn't pay much mind to it. Um, just because like the, the biomechanics of those two exercises are considerably different. And so, so that sort of critique would apply to both just very, very biomechanically dissimilar exercises or exercises with very, very different ranges of motion. Um, so I believe that there was a study on squats published a while back. Should have pulled this up, but it, it was basically comparing load equated full or like relative load equated full squats versus half squats. So, you know, heavier weights for the half squats than the full squats, but similar in relation to those two different movements, one RMs and found like fairly similar quad EMG for those two exercises. However, there have been several studies now comparing quad growth after partial versus full squats, finding more quad growth with full squats than partial squats. So even though the EMG is similar, there's like, there's another factor to consider that being range of motion and like the stretch put on the muscle at the bottom of a squat. Um, so even though you see similar EMG, you can't necessarily infer similar hypertrophic potential. So anyway, um, the big point I'm trying to make is, you know, if in the absence of longitudinal research, um, if if you don't have if you don't have longitudinal studies, you do have EMG, and you're dealing with two biomechanically similar exercises, you know, maybe pay a little attention to the EMG stuff. If you're dealing with two very biomechanically dissimilar exercises, I'm not personally going to worry about it too much. Um, the only other time where I think it's sometimes useful, and this is like a, a pretty, a pretty niche circumstance is if someone is making an argument that doesn't really make any biomechanical sense and <laughs> you can find EMG research to show like, Hey, look, you know, we're seeing virtually no EMG here. Like there's very little activation going on. This argument you're trying to make is relatively nonsensical. So, for example, uh, I wrote an article a while back called Lats and the Bench Press, Much Ado About Very Little. Um, a lot of people claim that the lats are one of the prime movers in the bench press and that, like, having weak lats could severely limit your bench press strength. And so, like, there have been a few EMG studies that have looked at lat EMG in the bench press, and uh, it's not much going on. Um, like very, very low lat activation in the bench press, uh, which would lead one to think like, Hmm, it's probably not really a prime mover here. Um, and also if you're getting, you know, a, a very, very small percentage of the juice out of the lats that you could be getting weak lats probably aren't going to be a major limiter of bench press performance. Uh, I, I mean, theoretically it's possible that if you just have, absurdly strong pecs and just garbage garbage weak lats like maybe in some theoretical scenario it could be a limiter but probably not often and so like incredibly low emg readings could be a small part of a case like that um but yeah for the most part if you're if you have longitudinal research showing that like hey this exercise seems to cause more growth than that exercise your default should be to, you know, rely on longitudinal research versus EMG stuff. If you don't have that and you're dealing with biomechanically similar exercises, I think you can take EMG differences as weak evidence in favor 
of one exercise or variation over the other. If you're dealing with two very different exercises, just don't worry about EMG. I don't think I don't think you should use that as kind of evidence for one exercise over the other. I want to see that physique with with the extremely strong pecs and lats so weak that they're the primary limiting factor. That would be fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's theoretically possible, but I've never seen it. Yeah. All right, moving on then. Yeah, so we have a question from Duke. Duke asks Eric, I've heard that having additional muscle mass can have effects on metabolism. Is this true? If so, can you please explain why? Thanks. Yes, so that's a good question. It comes up quite a lot. Um, Now, I think one of the things that contributes to this is it would be very fair and very true to say that fat-free mass is a big-time predictor of resting metabolic rate Um, to the extent that some predictive equations, which we've talked about previously, some of them only really factor in. I think it's the Cunningham equation only factors in, basically, your fat-free mass. Um, and so people think, okay, fat-free mass, if you're someone like us, you basically default that to, we're talking about muscle. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I think a lot of people are making, and obviously that's not an accurate leap to make, but a lot of us, when we think fat-free mass, we're thinking, okay, let's talk hypertrophy. Um, now, lean tissues certainly do have high metabolic rates relative to fat tissue, and uh, there's a nice table in one of the the ISSN uh, position statements that goes through different tissues and and puts down their uh, their metabolic rate at rest for a kilogram of tissue. Uh, now, obviously, we have a lot more uh, of some of these tissues than we do of others. So this is scaled per kilogram per day. Uh, so, for example, adipose tissue, fat tissue, we're talking about four and a half calories. Um, per kilogram per day. So that's pretty low. Um, Other kind of miscellaneous tissues, bone, skin, intestines, glands is 12 calories. Muscle is 13, but the real heavy hitters, when we get to like the liver, that's 200. Uh, The brain is 240, the heart is 400, and the kidneys are 400. So I think a lot of times we think of muscle tissue as this like insanely overly metabolically active tissue. And it's certainly far more active than than adipose tissue, but when you compare it to like the brain and the heart per kilogram, not even close. Okay. Well, and, and in terms of total expenditure, your uh, your brain and all of your muscle mass are fairly comparable. Correct. Yeah. And so uh, I think a lot of times, you know, people think, okay, well, if I gain muscle, my fat free mass is going to go up. And then my metabolic rate is going to go up uh, as an extension of that. And that is true to some extent. But like I said, per kilogram, we're only talking about uh, 13 calories per day in terms of energy expenditure. So, I mean, 10 kilograms is a very meaningful amount of muscle mass to put on. Extremely meaningful. You, You put on 10 kilograms of muscle mass, every person you meet that hasn't seen you in a while says, Oh my God, what happened? Right? Oh, oh my God, what's your cycle? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, uh, if you do, uh, if you're one of those fortunate people, you put on those 10 kilograms of solid muscle, your resting metabolic rate is, you know, just a quick calculation is likely to go up by about 130 calories per day. So, even with really, really impressive gains in muscle mass, the overall effect on, on resting metabolic rate is not 
particularly huge. I wouldn't call it negligible, but it's it's not particularly huge. Now, I, I will say a lot of people have this conversation. They leave it at that. And, and in terms of practical application, I, I think that's a fine place to end it. it, it you know, it's basically, hey, you're, it's not going to go up that much. So don't don't put all your eggs in that basket of I'm going to gain muscle so I can eat everything in sight. However, it's not necessarily that simple. So as I mentioned, we're talking just about the uh, the metabolic rate of these different tissues at rest. Now, if you do put on a ton of muscle, um, obviously you have more muscle to activate during training. And when you are doing any kind of ambulatory movement, uh, running, walking, you know, anything where you're bearing your weight, then you are moving a larger body and sacrificing some economy, theoretically. Uh, so that might also give you a little a little boost upward in terms of your total energy expenditure. But those are just me being very nitpicky and, and kind of mining through details. For all intents and purposes, um, gaining muscle within a realistic range of muscle gain is probably not your key to drastically increasing your total daily energy expenditure. You're much better off just looking at, I would say better off looking at wh- where can I get some non-exercise activity kind of injected into my day. I think that's probably your, your best option. Okay, moving on. We've got a question from Dustin. This question is, when combining unilateral and bilateral training in the same training session, is it more advantageous uh, in terms of strength and hypertrophy to do unilateral or bilateral exercises first? Yeah, so I, I think the answer to this is basically the answer to any question about what order exercises exercises should come in a training session, and that's that it mostly just depends on your priorities. So exercises that are more important to you or matter more to you uh, in terms of the results you're going to get from them, put them earlier in a training session. So there's there's probably some exceptions to that. So for example, if you care more about, say, your one rep max back squat than your one rep max snatch, but you're going to snatch and back squat in the same training session, may still be a better idea to snatch before you squat because, you know, doing squats after snatches is fine. Doing snatches after squats, your snatch your snatch training is going to suck. But for the most part, um, you know, whatever exercise matters to you more, do it first. So if your main goal is strength, then the exercises you most want to improve strength in should come earlier in your workout. So in your example, you know, if you mostly care about strength in the unilateral leg extension, uh, you know, do that before you do bilateral training. If you care more about the strength outcomes of the bilateral exercises, do that before the unilateral leg extension. Um, For hypertrophy, I think it... It kind of comes down to to a question of of like maximizing outcomes versus I guess like efficiency in a way. So here's what I mean by that. If you say really really want to maximize let's say hamstrings hypertrophy and you are going to do both leg curls and deadlifts in a single session, but you do also want to grow your back and your glutes and everything else. Um it may not be a great idea to do the hamstring curls first because maybe that's going to limit deadlift performance so much that you now need to add in additional exercises for 
your lumbar extensors and your glutes to get them an adequate training stimulus for growth. Whereas like if your hamstrings weren't pre-fatigued, maybe you wouldn't need to. Um, but for the most part, I think a decent default is starting with um, bilateral multi-joint movements and then moving on to unilateral and then finally single joint movements. But uh, if there is a particular unilateral movement that matters way, way more to you for whatever reason. So, you know, maybe you just really, really want to have the biggest single leg squat of anyone in your friend group. You know, do single leg squats first. Uh, it's going to be fine. And as far as hypertrophy outcomes go, as long as you are ultimately doing enough hard sets and adequately fatiguing the target muscles, you'll probably be fine. Um, but for the most part, in most circumstances, I probably recommend starting with, with the bilateral stuff. Um, but that's just me. There are some exceptions, I would say, to the general principle of doing exercises earlier in a workout uh, that matter more to you. But I think most of those exceptions, like I said, are either going to be something where you're dealing with a fatigue, like a more versus dramatically less fatiguing exercise, so say squats versus snatches, um, or if you're doing things as kind of more part of a warm-up than for an actual training stimulus. So a tip that I saw from John Meadows back in the day was to do not like super, super hard, but like just do some leg curls before you squat. Uh, he said that that anecdotally just made his knees feel a lot better and just helped squats feel nicer. Uh, I gave it a shot. I actually really liked it. I did that too back in the day. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, and I got it from him and I loved it. Sweet. Thank you, John. Uh, so I have no no good explanation for why that works, but uh, and I don't train at a gym with a, a, with a leg curl anymore, but <laughs> when I did, I would typically do leg curls before squats and they were great. Um, but that, that was more of like a warm up thing. So, you know, if, if I kind of fatigue the knee flexion function of the, of the hamstrings before squatting, that's not going to necessarily limit my squat performance. And it just felt good. It, it was more of a warm up thing than anything else. Um, or if you're, say, doing like a quote-unquote activation exercise before uh, before a core lift, I think that could be beneficial. So um, a lot of people report that they feel like they can get their glutes into the deadlift better uh, at lockout if they do some, like, not super hard, but like some light hip thrusts before they deadlift. Um, so, you know, I guess a deadlift isn't strictly a single joint exercise, but it kind of is. Uh but yeah, like in that case, like even if the deadlift is what matters more to you, doing that other exercise for activation purposes before you deadlift may be beneficial. But yeah, for the most part, I think just the general principle of exercises that matter more to you, put them earlier in your workout, will get you, you know, 80% of the way there for properly ordering exercises within a training session. Sounds good. Let's get back to nutrition. Let's do the good stuff. All right. Bobby B, Robert Baratheon himself, I am assuming, asks Eric, I recently reviewed the vital, parentheses, vitamin D and omega-3 findings that were sponsored by Brigham and Woman's, Brigham and Woman's Hospital? It's just some hospital, and I think it's Brigham, Brigham's Women's Hospital, maybe? Oh, okay, whatever. I, I Actually, I think my, my brother's fiance works there, if I'm not oh, mistaken. I, I should know that, but it's, it's some hospital in Boston. Uh, okay, so 
reviewed a trial about vitamin D and omega-3 sponsored by a women's hospital in Boston. Uh, And I was disappointed to find that the two supplements that I thought were actually worth taking had such poor results. While I never expected a cure for cancer from either vitamin D or fish oil, I was particularly disappointed to see that there weren't any differences in cardiovascular health outcomes either. Greg, Eric, Eric, uh, do either of you guys still see a point in vitamin D and fish oil supplementation? I'd like to hear your thoughts on Vital. Yeah, so um, this is kind of the inverse of what usually happens. Usually people see one really promising trial and they're like, hell yeah. And they're like really stoked about it. And we always say, hey, relax, don't get too excited about one trial. You know, let's look at the the total body of literature in aggregate. And so this is the inverse of that, right? Of, you know, a, a study comes out, there are high hopes, it falls a little flat in terms of outcomes and you go, ah, crap. But again, you know, let's take a take a, a broader look at the overall body of literature. So we'll start with the vital study. It, it last I checked, it was still ongoing. Huge, huge study, very well funded. Uh, almost twenty six thousand men and women across the U.S. participating in it in one one way, shape, or form. Holy shit, that's awesome! It's a large study, um, and, and so they're looking at vitamin D three, uh, two thousand IU's. Uh, they're also looking at omega three fatty acids. A gram of fish oil being the dose. And, you know, they're looking at different cancer and uh, cardiovascular outcomes. The key findings, uh, the, the paper I found most recently reporting findings from the trial, um, for, for vitamin D supplementation, they did not find a reduced risk of cancer. They did not find a reduced risk of uh, major cardiovascular events. Uh, they found some evidence that it might have had some small reduction in cancer-related death Um so not reduced rates of cancer, but cancer-related death, okay? With the omega-3 fatty acid uh, results, they found no reduction in cancer risk. Uh, they did not find any reduction uh, in uh, the risk of major cardiovascular events overall, um, but they did find a, a small effect in the people that specifically had low fish intake w- within the cohort. Um, they found that the uh, risk of heart attack was reduced by uh, 28%, when heart attack was considered separately from other cardiovascular events. So I think their initial analysis just kind of grouped all the cardiovascular events together. But when they kind of uh, parsed it out a little bit, they, they did find some some semblance of an effect for heart attack risk. Um, so that's one study. Um, but there was a very recent meta-analysis. Whenever possible, I like to lean on a really well-done meta-analysis to get a better, more comprehensive look at the literature Um, so what was cool about this one is sometimes you'll see people who they'll do a meta and they'll like, well, you'll see people saying, oh, they excluded the study that would have really jacked up their results. Right. I think with this particular meta, not only did they include that vital trial, but the, the, uh, one of the authors, the senior author of the meta was one of the authors on the vital trial. Like, so, so so I, I think it kind of depends on I think it kind of depends on the size of the trials in the meta. So there was, there's a paper published, I believe in JAMA, maybe like 2012, 2013, basically looking to see. So, you know, we, we assume that like a large, well-controlled RCT is still the gold standard of research. Uh, and that with metas, sometimes you can just get like a garbage in garbage out effect. Um, you know, 
small or like spurious findings from or like spurious findings from small sample research. You know, maybe you have some publication bias, which is like muddying the body of literature, especially if you're dealing with small trials. And so it was looking at it was looking at the rates at which meta analyses conducted on a collection of small studies differed in results from subsequently published very large RCTs. Um, I think mostly looking at at medical stuff like drug trials. Um, And it found that like, man, I wish I had it in front of me, but a non-negligible amount of the time, maybe like 30, 40% of the time, uh, large, well-conducted RCTs would come to different results than metas on like relatively small samples. So I, I do largely agree with you if you have uh, a well-conducted meta with largely good, high-quality studies going into it. That's probably worth paying more mind to than a single, well-conducted, you know, individual study that is of comparable quality to the stuff that's already in a meta, or you know, the other things in a meta that it is also included in. But I, I would. Uh, I would just like to add that like little bit of nuance there that sometimes one particularly well-conducted study can be more valuable than maybe like a garbage in garbage out type meta. Like I, I definitely don't think that's what's going on here, but that I, I think that I think a lot of people have too quick of a knee jerk reaction to just go with a meta like over a a very well-conducted RCT. And I don't think that's a a terrible heuristic, but it's not, I don't think it's the right way to go in all circumstances all the time. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, when you're, when you're working your way through a meta, you know, certainly you'll want to look at the studies that, that are going into it and you say, okay, well, this one was done extremely meticulously with a huge sample and has really good dosing guidelines for the supplement. And all the other ones are little, piece of crap studies that were done poorly and had stupid outcomes and really low doses of the the active ingredient. Yeah. At that point, you're going to say, I don't, I don't want to contaminate the good results with all this crap in there, you know? So, so absolutely that, that, that is true. In the case of this particular meta analysis, the lead author was Hugh uh, and it was, it was published in 2019. This one had 13 trials included with a total of over 127,000 subjects. So, on average, they they were pretty large trials going into this. Um, but what they found by aggregating the results from from all these trials going into it, um, actually, a, a cool thing they did was they removed this one study that was particularly uh, impressive with regard to the magnitude of effects that that it found. So they did a, a bit of a sensitivity analysis. You know, like we're talking about, they wanted to make sure that one particular study wasn't really pulling all the results in one direction. So. Even without that study, um, and this one was looking at, at um, uh, fi- uh, fish oil specifically here, um, they did find small but statistically significant benefits when it comes to uh, the rate of uh, myocardial infarctions, uh, car- uh, death related to uh, coronary heart disease, total coronary heart disease, cardiovascular disease death, and total cardiovascular disease. Um, and, you know, we're talking about uh, rate ratios above 0.9, okay, with, with 1.0 being no effect at all. So th- these are not huge, and the confidence intervals are all kind of flirting with that 1.0 number. Um, what, what they did find as well in this particular study was um, 
Obviously, they added in that additional study and the effects got even more pronounced. But, you know, you got to be careful about how much you want to really consider those results when you know there's that huge outlier kind of pulling those values. Um, But they did find a statistically significant uh, dose response relationship. And so uh, what they found was, you know, the, the larger the fish oil doses were, the more protective they appeared to be for some of these cardiovascular health outcomes. Now, I do want to be clear, the, the, there have been big reviews and meta-analyses on this topic that have come out with uh, equivocal findings. Basically, they're like, okay, well, the fish oil didn't do anything bad, but it didn't really help much at all. And so I, I don't want to present this as if it's a closed case, like definitely fish oil, major preventative effect on heart disease and, and, and related uh, outcomes. However, um, you know, I, I think what's really important when it comes to fish oil is remembering why you would bother, okay? So omega-3 fatty acids are essential in the diet. We have to have dietary sources of omega-3s, and particularly uh, the marine omega-3s are are, are quite quite effective uh, in in terms of their physiological function. We want to make sure we're getting EPA and DHA, and frankly, we're we're pretty terrible at converting uh, ALA to, to um, to those other omega-3s to EPA and DHA. And so we want to make sure that we're getting some source of EPA and DHA in the diet if we can. And, uh, you know, so if you're eating plenty of fish, I would not expect a really meaningful health effect from fish oil supplementation. But if you're somebody who doesn't eat uh, really any fatty fish, when I look at the, the potential pros and cons of including a fish oil supplement, it seems like you know, within a reasonable dosing, it's like you don't have much to lose there and it might have some small positive effect. And frankly, the, the, the marine derived omega-3s are just awesome. When you, when you look at their roles in the eyes and the brain and several different, uh, different tissues throughout the body and different organ systems, it makes sense to me to make some effort, effort to get marine omega-3s into the diet, whether you're getting it from a few servings of fatty fish a week or whether you're, you're getting it from a sensibly dosed fish oil supplement. Um, now there are, you know, when people think of marine derived omega-3s, they always think fish oil. It is important to note that uh, there are some vegan sources of marine-derived omega-3s. A lot of times people on vegan or vegetarian diets that, that you know, people that don't eat fish, uh, a lot of times they'll go for ALA sources of omega-3s. So they'll go for like flaxseed, chia seed, hemp seeds. Um, I've seen a lot more products lately using algae and seaweed, um, which apparently actually do contain EPA and DHA in them. And so uh, at face value, that seems to me like it'd probably be a preferable approach rather than going with ALA because, like I said, that conversion from ALA is pretty inefficient uh, for for humans. So kind of putting all the literature on omega-3 together, like I said, there there have been some results going either way. There have been some mixed results in the research. I think uh, the, the kind of baseline starting point for is it worth it to supplement with omega-3s specifically fish derived or or marine derived omega-3s i'd say if you're not getting plenty of omega-3s in the diet uh if you're not eating fatty fish or some other source of of these marine omega-3s it makes sense to at least supplement a little bit i wouldn't expect any particularly huge effects but i just can't see what it would hurt uh in theory now, there have been some studies looking at fish oil basically saying like, oh, it has these effects on fat oxidation or anabolic or catabolic signaling, and those are going to have big effects on muscle mass and body composition. 
I am much more skeptical about those particular outcomes. Um, you know, there are some studies showing these little mechanistic effects that that seem like they might be notable, but when you look at the research actually evaluating body comp outcomes in healthy people, it really doesn't seem to pan out in a particularly impressive way. So if you're thinking, I'm going to get on fish oil because it's going to have a tangible impact on my physique or my performance, I'd say probably not. Well, I, only if it's flame out. I've never heard of that in my life. What? Flame out? Isn't that the uh, the biotest brand omega three supplement that I people don't know, man. P- people used to swear by it for getting huge back in the day? Well, I mean, I, I'm completely joking. Like, I don't think that it it and it alone is like the one omega three that'll get get you huge. But I know that that's like that's the train everyone was on back in like oh six. Okay, yeah, I, I miss that train. But, uh, it, but yeah, it the, wasn't a particularly good train as far <laughs> as trains go. You know, it wasn't one of those like high speed bullet trains, just, you know, kind of like a, a standard train. Lots of carbon emissions just right, kind of yeah. chugging along. Yeah. So like I said, EPA and DHA have important roles in the body. You're going to want to get it somewhere. If you're not eating fatty fish or some other kind of source of it, a, a supplement makes sense. But I wouldn't expect it to have some huge effect on, on, on certainly not on your physique. And even the magnitude of the effects on these different cardiovascular risks is small. I, I think that's fair to say. Now, vitamin D, I actually just reviewed a vitamin D meta-analysis. Um, it was by Han and colleagues. I, I reviewed it in mass this past month. And uh, boy, oh boy, Greg, you said not to be not to have too much faith in metas. So <laughs> this is an example. I actually, as mass readers will know, I just recalculated it. I, I didn't like how they handled it. I found some errors. So I just kind of, I just kind of redid it. So yeah, your, your advice to be, uh, to still proceed with caution with meta analyses. Uh, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, but in any case, I, uh, you know, when you look at the vitamin D literature, a lot of studies, they specifically look at older populations or clinical populations, which from a public health perspective makes all the sense in the world, right? Um, but we're selfish and we want to get jacked. So what was cool about this meta-analysis is it actually looked specifically at athletes looking at how vitamin D supplementation affected uh, strength performance. So when it comes to the health stuff like vitamin D, it's a vitamin. You want your levels to be normal. Like that's about as far as I as I want to get into it in terms of like long term health outcomes. I know the vital study was specifically looking at cardiovascular risk and looking at cancer risk. Um, I'm no cardiologist or oncologist, but generally speaking, if something's a vitamin, you'd want to not be deficient in it is my general default for good health. Um, but but I figure a lot of people listening probably do have an interest in the performance effects of vitamin D because Back in the day, you know, a few years ago, vitamin D, I think, was really popular in lifters because you see these studies and there actually is a, a decent amount of, of of healthy people and even healthy athletes who are walking around with blood vitamin D levels that are considered uh, insufficient or or even deficient. And so that caught a lot of people's of att- the attention of a lot of lifters. And also there are several uh, realistic mechanisms by which we could expect vitamin D to play some supportive role in neuromuscular function. So I think a lot of people in the lifting world looked at it and said, okay, vitamin D relates to my strength and muscle gains. And a lot of people seem to be deficient in it. So I better get on it. And so this meta-analysis looked at 
uh, different supplement, vitamin D supplement interventions, looking at strength outcomes. When I recrunched the numbers, it, it basically included studies looking at one of two outcomes. So they were either looking at isokinetic knee extension performance or bench press, bench press performance. The overall effect size was a, a Cohen's D value. It was actually Hedges G, but but they're interpreted in a similar way uh, of 0.2, which is like small, but for supplements, small small effects are like the name of the game, basically. The p-value was 0.34, but it was at least enough to say, okay, well, that's kind of interesting. Where it got even more interesting was if you break it up, the bench press results had a d-value of negative 0.12. But for leg extension, the isokinetic leg extension, the effect size was 0.63, and that was statistically significant. Um, A couple trends that jumped out from the data, the largest effects for vitamin D supplementation, unsurprisingly, were observed in the samples who started out with the lowest blood vitamin D levels. And that that seems to line up pretty well with what I mentioned in those the, the vital study, how they, they were like, okay, there seemed to be some protective effect, particularly in the people who had really low intakes of fish, right? So it, it goes to that point of when we look at these things as supplements, the whole point is to just make up for a deficiency in the diet. So we're not taking things like fish oil and vitamin D to become more than human and, you know, ascend to the next level of being. We're taking them because it's like, oh, shit, I haven't been eating any fish. I should probably get those fatty acids, right? Same thing with vitamin D. Oh, my levels are low. I might want to jump on that to get them into the normal range. Yeah. So we're we're just correcting deficiencies here. We're not not expecting anything particularly uh, shocking in terms of results. Another trend, uh, like I mentioned, there appeared to be a difference between upper body and lower body outcomes, but I did some digging through the rest of the literature. I don't think that has anything to do with how muscles work. I, I, I really believe that that is purely a methods issue. And so, uh, you know, when, we, when they look at the bench press, it's a blunt measurement. Most studies, most strength labs don't really have like micro plates where they can do really, really small increments in bench press. Even if you did with bench press, you kind of have to like, when you're, when you're guessing the one rep max increments, you have to be pretty good at it and get a true max before you fatigue the participant, which... It, it, and it kind of depends how strong someone is. Yeah. Like if someone's, if someone benches somewhere around 315 and, you know... Maybe they could have gotten 318, but they fail 320. Uh, you're still pretty close. You know, you're you're about 1% off. But if it's, say, like untrained females and you're dealing with someone who, you know, they get 60 pounds, they fail 65, but they could have done 64. At that point, you're... How much is that? It's a, it's a non-negligible percentage off. Right. Um... It's like it's like six and a half percent. So yeah, like it it depends what what population you're dealing with, but yeah, for sure, only being able to do like two and a half or five pound increments can definitely lead to poor precision in some applications. Yeah, and there's there's also you'd like to pretend there aren't, but there are some psychological factors as well. Usually, in a bench press study, people are going to know what they did at the pretest. I mean, they can typically see the plates. And so a lot of people with a pre-post design, they don't want their bench to go down. They want it to go up. And so you, you have to be really, really vigilant when you're running a study like that, that you are getting a 100% legitimate maximal effort on all visits and making sure that they're not kind of sandbagging that first visit 
or tapping into some like superhuman level of motivation for that post visit because they want to beat their pre. But in, in any case, if you compare that to something like isokinetic leg extension, it's like, first of all, you can adjust every part of that machine to standardize the movement perfectly. I mean, you can adjust the hip angle. The, I mean, I mean, I've I've used these leg extension dynamometers before. The number of adjustments you can make, I think you can jot down probably somewhere between nine and twelve different settings for each person's chair placement. Like it, it, it's absolutely insane the number of things you can adjust to make it a perfectly repeatable exercise. A hundred percent. They also have no idea how much they're moving unless you tell them. Like they won't know the Newton meters they put out unless you tell them. Um, and, and so th- th- there's a lot of benefits and it can be a precise number of Newton meters. Like, like we said, we don't have to hope we're within five pound increments. We can get a really nice, precise measurement down to the exact Newton meter. So, um, when you look at the, the really, really precise strength measurements that have been taken in this literature, there does seem to be a small effect of vitamin D. When you look at the less precise measurements, that effect seems to wash out. At least that, that was my take looking through the literature. I think that's that's fair and at minimum very plausible. Yeah, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe maybe there's something really special about the lower body musculature that's totally different. But I, I think the most parsimonious explanation comes down to testing. Is it theorized or has it been observed that vitamin D affects any sort of like neural variables? Because I I know that there's I know that there's some stuff in like the the neuromuscular fatigue literature that indicates that like mechanisms of fatigue and the ability to activate motor units differ to some degree between upper and lower body where essentially like if you're dealing with if you're dealing with this like central fatigue or just kind of like psychological but non-physical fatigue that could impact lower body performance much more so than upper body and so like who knows maybe like vitamin D has something to do with that if if it's having some sort of effects on the nervous system could just be that like the lower body is a little bit more sensitive to that um even just me saying this right now that that feels to me like a bit of a reach so the reason that i didn't go all the way down that route when i was trying to figure this out is a couple main studies um There was one big study with cross-sectional strength data where they did upper and lower body measurements all using dynamometry. And in that study, the upper body and lower body relationship with, with vitamin D and strength, it was the same for upper body and lower body. If not, you could actually make the argument it was a little bit more reliable in the upper body than the lower body. So, um, it it definitely went against that concept that, that it's having a bigger, proportionately stronger effect on the lower body musculature from a physiological perspective once that sensitivity of measurement is kind of equated. The other thing that really pushed me over the top for justification was there was a different meta-analysis that included several other studies. And so for the upper body and lower body... Was that the one where they included hand grip strength? I think, yeah. Okay. Some of it was. It was by Tomlinson, I think. Yeah, yeah. And so... The upper body and lower body, looking at each of them independently, there tended to be more notable effects with dynamometry-based measurements. And then when they used kind of more blunt measurements with free weights or machines, then the the effects seemed to really wash away. 
whether you were looking at upper body or lower body. So that makes sense. All of that, all of that combined, I wouldn't say certainly that there's not a physiological rationale, but I I think the the simplest and most evidence based at this point explanation probably comes down to testing method. Makes sense. If if I had to choose one or the other. Um so when when it comes to vitamin D, uh one thing to keep in mind, there there is a bit of a debate regarding what a sufficient level is. Um, so some people say that that blood levels of 25 OHD, which is like the simple blood vitamin D test that gets done most most frequently, some people say it should be uh, above 20 nanograms per milliliter, which is uh, 50 nanomoles per liter. I hate this. This is one of those uh, one of those things where they don't agree on the units. Some people use one, some use the other, which just makes makes things unnecessarily complicated. Um, other people suggest that it should be above 30 nanograms per milliliter, which is 75 nanomoles per liter. And so I don't know if vitamin D experts have finally gotten together recently and sorted this out, but I would say it makes sense to shoot for the higher one because frankly, I mean, you're, you're not anywhere near toxicity levels if you meet the lower end of that, of that higher range. So 75 nanomoles per liter. Um, if, if from my perspective, I, I see no downside to shooting for that as you're just like safe bet in terms of blood vitamin D levels. Now, it, there, there is some potential uh, that you could achieve toxicity because it is a, a fat soluble vitamin. Um, so I, I do recommend if you want to go the vitamin D route, like the theoretically the best option is to get with a healthcare uh, provider, get with your doctor or whatever get your blood levels tested and get on a supplement plan with them, have them guide you through it. Um, It's kind of like a TRT kind of thing where if like, if you're on like real TRT and you just don't just want like a steroids prescription, but if you're like below the normal test range, they don't just say, I don't know, go find some testosterone and give it a shot. They say, okay, let's get you on a plan and and we'll, we'll handle the dosing and get you into the normal range. There's like a, an observation process that, that is uh, guided by that healthcare practitioner. I think that's the best bet with vitamin D. Um, Now, a lot of times people wonder, well, who, who should be taking vitamin D? Um, they, vitamin D levels tend to be lower in people who um, have minimal direct exposure to sunlight, live at high out, uh, high latitudes, or frequently wear uh, a lot of sunblock, like really strong sun sunblock. Now, a lot of times you'll hear that uh, people with darker skin pigmentation have lower vitamin D levels. And that is true for 25 OHD concentrations in the blood, but people have done more research like in the last few years. And what they're finding is that the the 25 OHD test might not be the best test for people who do have darker skin pigmentation. And when they look at the more bioavailable portion of of, uh, blood vitamin D levels with a slightly different test, they do find that despite having lower total levels of 25 OHD, some people with darker skin pigmentation actually do have a completely sufficient amount of bioactive uh, vitamin D. So again, it's the kind of thing that if you're concerned about it, it's probably best to get with a, a healthcare professional who who knows what they're doing so they can get you on the right track there. Um, so again, sum- summarizing things here, whether you're talking about fish oil or, or vitamin D, these are, you know, you want your vitamin D to be in normal ranges. You want to be getting sufficient uh, marine-derived 
omega-3s from your diet. And if your diet alone is not taking care of these things, I think supplementation makes a lot of sense. But if you're totally sufficient with these things, I would not expect that supplementation with either of them is going to have a meaningful effect either when it comes to your performance, your body composition, or as the original question mentioned, your health outcomes. Makes sense. Cool. That was a long one. I feel like I talked for a long time. Yeah, you did. Yeah. Okay. I had virtually nothing to add. Uh, well, you were mentioned in the question, weren't you? That's a shame. I mean, he addressed it to both of us, but I wasn't going to touch that with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Um, so one random fact about if you, for whatever reason, uh, very foolheartedly decided to take mega doses of vitamin D every day without a need to, um, I don't think... Any research on that exists in humans, because why would it? Uh, it would be very hard to clear that by by an IRB, um, because, you know, megadosing fat-soluble vitamins you don't readily flush out could have very negative adverse effects. But one, uh, one potential side effect of super, super, like, crazy high vitamin D intakes uh, potentially is... Uh, a very significant amount of fatty acid infiltration of the muscles or like adipose tissue inflammation of the muscles. Um, so that's what happens when you megadose cows with vitamin D. That's one of the things they do to uh, to cows when they're trying to fatten them up. Uh, You're kidding b- me. Before they're slaughtered. Like, I, I don't think it's super common, but there is like research in, in the livestock literature looking at vitamin D megadosing cattle. Um so there's at least, I mean, I don't think, I'm not claiming that for sure happens in humans, but there is at least some reason to suspect that it could potentially happen. Um, so yeah, it's not smart. Don't well, don't megadose fat-soluble vitamins. If there's a dietary effect in a cow, why wouldn't it apply to you? That would be my counter question. Well, I mean, I'm not going to pretend like I know all of the aspects of vitamin D metabolism in humans, much less cattle. Well, that, that, that was just me throwing back to my egregious misquotes regarding game changers. Oh, yeah. If it works for the cow, <laughs> it should work for you. True, oh, God. yeah. I need to let that go. Um, how do they do the, the, is it foie gras, the fatty liver? Oh, that's... How that, do they do that? It's de- it's disgusting and deeply unethical. Um, they They just force feed the baby goose. Um, How do they force feed it? I'm pretty sure they intubate it. Oh, man. Yeah. That's messed up. Yeah, I, I've never had it. Um, I mean, I I didn't grow up all bougie. Uh, but, you know, I saw that it was used in a lot of, like, bougie dishes. And I was like, oh, you know, maybe at some point if I feel like splurging, see what uh, foie gras is like. Um and then I figured out what it was and how they went about producing it and said, no, that's, I mean, I, I'm not that much of a tree hugger. Like, I'm not like a, a radical vegan or anything like that. But as far as like animal welfare goes in in the food supply, um, that's that's definitely a line that I, I feel like shouldn't be crossed. Yeah, I, I've never had it. I've never I've never even seen it like on a menu or at the store. But uh, I knew it existed, and I knew it was gross, and it's it's fatty fatty liver, yeah, is, is basically it, right? But yeah, your your comment on how they 
do that to cows got me wondering. I was like, how do they do that again? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's essentially torture. God, that's awful. Okay, let's move on to some lighter topics. We just fucked up this Valentine's episode. I know, we really blew it. Sorry, guys. <laughs> um, okay, we, we've got a question from Fit by Psy. Hopefully you guys blew it before we got to this part of the episode. That's that's terrible. Okay. We're leaving it in. Um, if I was born with poor lifting genes, but I continued lifting just because I like it, and then I give birth to a child who inherited my poor genes, but they also lifted just because they liked it, how many generations of children is it going to take before my family now has good lifting genes? <laughs> Uh, so that's a good question. It could be as few as one. Um, so, you know, it's going to depend on, uh, you know, who your children marry and whether their spouses have good genetics for lifting. Uh, cause you know, that, that, that can sort itself out pretty quickly. Just speaking anecdotally here for myself, um, my father, I think has considerably below average genetics for resistance training he uh he he didn't do it until he was already older like in his 50s but uh you know he he does resistance training now and does some squats does some bench press i think he still does deadlifts i'm not sure about that um but you know does he he does the damn thing has a has a weight set in the basement um and you know i'm proud of the guy his like since he started exercising more both resistance training and like doing more cardio like he he did a half marathon recently which like i thought was super super cool he was a really good cross-country runner in high school but like basically didn't run for like 30 years so like super proud of him for getting back in that kind of shape and like i said he's been doing some lifting um he's been doing some lifting as well and I don't know. I'm not. Gonna, I'm not going to tell the entire internet my father's numbers, but they're not impressive. Um, <laughs> they're whatever you're thinking. They're probably lower. Uh, however, you know, I clearly turned out okay. Got reasonably strong. Am still reasonably strong. And a lot of that is because my mother was f- fucking insane. Like incredibly strong. And that that entire side of the family, my mom's whole side of the family, everyone, even most of the people who've never trained are super strong, and all of the ones who have trained are super, super strong. Like, there's there's multiple 500-pound bench pressers and 800-pound deadlifters on that side of the family. Now, most of them are, you know, six somewhere between 6'3 and 6'8 and very large, uh, so I didn't, I didn't get that part of the gene line. Um... But, you know, my father cutting his very below average strength genetics with my mother's very exceptional strength genetics worked out pretty, pretty okay for me. Um, So, you know, it's going to depend a lot on on spouse selection and uh, and whether, you know, those spouses give the children good genes. I like how you say spouse reinforcing those good family values. It's not made. It's got to be it's got to be through marriage. Well, okay, yeah, that's. potentially discriminatory um just whoever they decide to copulate with (laughs) there you go anyway um so uh, another thing i would say as well is when people don't respond super well to training their knee-jerk reaction i think is to assume that they have bad genetics which 
isn't a terrible assumption because most of the heritable and and difficult and poorly malleable traits about yourself um, are are likely due to genes, at least to some degree or another. But another thing to keep in mind is environment matters a lot. Um, and so not just like, you know, your current house and neighborhood and whatnot, but environments such as in, in utero dev- environments or like early childhood upbringing, like there's a lot of epigenetic changes and modifications that go on during infancy and early childhood that are malleable, but more difficult to change in adulthood. Um, so, you know, you very well may not get great results in the gym, but maybe that's due to, you know, some epigenetic, epigenetic modifications due to your like in utero or early childhood environments that if your, you know, if your kids have your same genes or very, very similar genes, but like a different in utero and early childhood environment, they they very well may end up uh, more responsive to resistance training. Uh, on that topic, interestingly, there was a review published recently titled Impact of Parental Exercise on Epigenetic Modifications Inherited by Offsprings, a Systematic Review. And so it was a systematic review, but I'm pretty sure it only included four studies. Um, so, you know, it, it's not like there's been a ton of of uh, work in this area yet, but um the stuff that's out there does indicate that essentially if you do all the quote unquote right stuff, if you exercise, if you eat well, um, benefits of that will likely be passed on to your children. So, you know, whatever genes you have, assuming your children have similar genes, but you know, you take better care of yourself and, like they have a better uterine environment and a better early childhood environment and and like upbringing to be conducive to um, getting big and strong. They're, you know, the way that they respond to training very well could be considerably better than yours, even with just, uh, even with similar actual genetic makeups. Um, So anyway, yeah, I mean, the the thing that's going to matter more than... (laughs) More than anything else by far is just, you know, if you have shitty genes and your kids have shitty genes, but then your kids procreate with someone with exceptional genes, uh, you know, you might be looking at one generation to really turn that around. But, uh, you know, just you trying to be responsible and give your kids uh, the best an environment that is conducive to training responsiveness, which I'm going to assume is, you know, not letting them become obese in early childhood and making sure that they're active and play sports and whatnot, uh, that will probably help them as well. I I think that there's probably a, I think there's probably a wall that you can hit with just that strategy. Um, so, you know, ultimately Darwin was correct and not Lamarck. Um, so, you know, there is probably like, a a hard limit that you could get with just epigenetic modifications, but you know, it's probably not nothing. So yeah, that's uh, I, I like the premise of this question. We, we were talking about this, looking over the outline before we started recording. This guy's thinking like, you know, I, I want to get what I can out of this, but you know, in the year 3000, <laughs> I want my great, 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 great grandchildren 
to be fucking jacked. Right. And I like that. That's uh, that's good long-term thinking. You pass the marshmallow test with flying colors and hopefully can pass it for, uh, you know, for all of your offspring as well. But um, yeah, that's... it's like planting a tree. You're not doing it for yourself. You're doing it for the next generation. Correct. Which yeah. is really admirable. Yeah. So I'm just wondering how that could possibly work logistically. Like maybe for your inheritance, you could write something into it. Like, okay, so here's what you got to do at Fit by Psy. So you need to make your fortune. You know, you need to make a few billion dollars, enough that it's going to be like a huge nest egg for generations to come. You need to put that in escrow and you need to have a stipulation that like your direct blood blood relatives can inherit that money, but only if they uh, are verifiably resistance training enough. So, you know, if they're not hitting the gym for a couple hours, three or four times a week, they're not seeing a penny of that. Um, so in order for this plan to work, for this to not just be purely theoretical, you need to to make sure you have a big enough carrot that you can dangle out there for, you know, at least a few score years to, to really pull this plan off. Um, so that, that's probably what I'd recommend first and foremost here. Perfect. Yeah. Very applicable. Very pragmatic. It's good. Okay. Moving on. Matt asks Eric, are standing desks scientifically better for athletes than sitting all day? And how is that quantifiable? Thinking about converting my office setup to standing, but don't want to waste money. Yeah, that's a good question. So a lot of times when people uh, bring up the concept of standing desks, one of the things that comes up a lot is energy expenditure. And they're like, well, if I'm standing at my desk instead of sitting, theoretically, I'm burning more calories throughout the day. That should either help me get leaner or should allow me to stay, you know, the same body fat percentage while eating more. And both of those, a lot of people view as a good thing. So I, I wanted to address that based on a study I found from 2017. Lead author's name was Gibbs. And they basically just looked at energy expenditure over a one hour period. Uh, they did indirect calorimetry to uh, to measure how, how many calories uh, participants were burning in in three different conditions. So they either were just doing their desk work for an hour, just sitting at their desk, um, or they did 30 minutes of sitting and 30 minutes of standing, or they did the full hour standing. And uh, what they basically found here was uh, um, compared with sitting, the combination of standing and sitting gave them an additional 5.5 calories per hour. So it increased their energy expenditure by about seven or eight percent. Now, compared to sitting, if you stood the whole hour, that increased energy expenditure by about eight calories per hour, which was about an 11 or 12 percent increase. Um, so what what they calculated was if they just kind of uh, alternated positions throughout the day to give them four hours a day of standing, that would ultimately throughout a, a work day translate to about 40 or 50 calories day, uh, or, or I should say 40, eh, 50 to 60 calories per day burnt, depending on how big you are, depending on your body size. Um, they also looked at a few additional outcomes. They looked at heart rate, productivity, and self-reported energy fatigue and pain. For all of those outcomes, they didn't find anything that was particularly uh, notable. So in terms of the energy expenditure, 
I mean, if you view standing at your desk as being a huge pain, I mean, we're talking about if you increase your standing time by four hours a day by using this strategy, we're talking about an extra like 50 calories. That That's really not a ton. So it's not a particularly effective strategy for that. Now, that doesn't mean there's no benefit whatsoever of breaking up your, your completely sedentary time. But, uh, you know, a couple things to keep in mind are subjectively, like I- I've used standing desks for periods of time. For certain tasks, I find it, uh, I almost am able to kind of lock in and focus better when I'm standing. But for other tasks, I'm like, I got to sit for this. And I-, I know that's weird. I know it's totally anecdotal, but it's something to keep in mind. Like when if you're using this desk to do like your work, which is important, like you have to make sure that you're putting your, you're setting yourself up to be productive and focused while you're working. That's going to be way more important than 40 or 50 calories per day. Um, another thing to keep in mind. So like I've used standing desks before in the past, not because I was like, oh man, I got to burn some calories or break up my sedentary sitting time, but because my back freaking hurt like my back or my hip or something. And I was like, I can't keep sitting in a chair. It's killing me. And so for it, there are reasons why you might implement like an adjustable standing versus seated desk, but I would not expect it to have a huge impact on your daily energy expenditure. There, there have been some studies like in the world of public health where they look at other options where they basically say like every so often throughout the day, take a walk around the floor, like at, at your workplace, just to break up your sedentary time. If the point was to break up sedentary time and the point was to increase energy expenditure throughout the day, I would personally uh, lean toward a more mobile option of breaking up that sedentary time. So, uh, you know, if you've got a stairwell in the workplace, it, when you can afford to take a minute away from your work, if that's possible, go do a couple flights of stairs and get back into it. Um, so th- that's kind of how I would view it. Well, I don't- and then another thing to add as well is there there has been research looking at whether sedentary time is, is bad, is associated with the deleterious health effects independent of exercise. So basically, you know, if you sit for 12 hours a day, but then two hours a day, you really get after it in the gym and exercise very intensely, can you will you still are you still likely to see negative effects from that sedentary time uh and it does appear that yes time spent sitting or lying down um and i guess specifically time spent sitting mostly during the work day or during uh you know time when you're home from work but not asleep does does seem to be independently associated with deleterious health effects, even when accounting for time spent exercise. Yeah, I, I that was my understanding of the literature as well. My gut reaction, though, I got to feel like some kind of ambulation is probably even more effective for breaking up that sedentary time than just standing stationary. Oh, for sure. I, yeah. I would have to think so. So personally, I think that would the way I would view it personally would be I'm going to work in whatever posture allows me to be pain-free, comfortable, and focused on my work. And if I am going to break up that uh, sedentary time, I'm probably going to, if possible, opt for a quick walk around the building, a, a quick walk up and down a flight of stairs a couple times. You know, whatever you can, whatever you're able to get in, I think would probably be the best option. If you're, if you're interested in overhauling, say, like a home office, uh, and you're thinking you you may be willing to spend a fair amount of money it may not be a terrible idea to look into a treadmill desk either um so i know that there's some literature 
looking at learning, so like encoding information, in, like when you're either sedentary or engaging in very light physical activity. And it seems like you do learn a little bit more efficiently and effectively um, if you are like undergoing light physical activity. So the the study that springs to mind, um, and so the, the, the reason this is on my mind is when I went to college, I was a history major and history is fucking hard. So like when I transferred to exercise science, that was that was the best decision I ever made for mental health because exercise science classes were so much easier than history classes. Um, just like the sheer amount of information you had to learn for like as a history major was was immense. Um, and so I had never had trouble learn just, you know, just learning enough facts uh, to keep up in class before. And then when I went to college, uh, my first semester, I was taking like four, like four or five pretty challenging upper level history classes. And it, I realized within a couple of weeks, like, oh shit, this very well may kick my ass. And so I got online and I was like, what are things that I can use to learn more efficiently? So like, you know, I only have to look at this material two or three times to get it locked down pretty well instead of five or six times. Uh, and I came across some research looking at language acquisition in, I believe, school-aged children. So like, you know, 15, 16-year-old kids where they had them try to learn new words in, a, in I believe, in a foreign language, uh, either sitting or just walking slowly on a treadmill. Uh, and they they learned like, God, I haven't read this study in over a decade, so I don't remember any of the details. Maybe I should have been walking when I was reading it. Um, but it was, it was a non-negligible difference in the rate that they were able to both learn and retain that information. And so I said like, well, fuck it, I'm going to give this a shot. And so, uh, I did all of my reading and studying for class in like the student gym. I just hop on a treadmill, set it to like a mile and a half, two miles an hour, really slow and just do all of my reading and studying there. And just anecdotally, I personally found it to be super, super helpful and beneficial. Um, I retained information a lot better. I found myself getting better grades while studying slightly less. So your mileage may vary, um, but if you're if you're already looking into standing desks, and and so again, I'm basing this off of like three studies that I found when I was a freshman in college and didn't know shit about the scientific method. So the overall state of the literature now could be completely different. Um, just throwing that out there as a caveat, but if you are thinking about changing your desk situation, I would personally recommend at least looking into that body of literature because treadmill desks for the investment may kind of give you more than just standing desks would, um, or they could not. And, uh, you know, three studies I pulled up when I was 18 could be completely wrong now. Who knows? <laughs> we'll never know. But uh, the, the nice thing about the standing desk option is that it, it can be so easy to do. And so like for me, there have been times where due to various, you know, back or hip pain or whatever it is, I've, I've opted to do some part of the workday standing. I will say this, it can get pretty, your legs can tire out if you stand for, for that long. And so well, that's the, something to keep in mind. That's the thing with me. Um, I find that my legs get way less tired if I'm walking really slow than if I'm just standing in place. 
Yeah. So like there, there were days where I'd like stand for much of the work day and then go hit a sick leg day in the gym and it wasn't so sick. <laughs> All right. Uh, you want to move on to the research roundup? Yeah, let's do it. Cool. All right. So I've got, uh, I'm going to try to get through these kind of quickly. We are running a bit long on time here. Um, I have had no fewer than 10 people formally request that we put out four hour episodes since we're only doing them every other week now. Well, that's a lot of hours. So we're not running as long as some people wish we were. Yeah. It can be kind of tiring to talk for two and a half hours, though. It kind of is. Like, I'm I'm pretty beat, actually. Like, I mean, we, we could go we could go the one podcast direction where you just kind of talk about whatever you feel like and don't have any evidence to, to back it up and don't have to, like, do background research. We could talk about that stuff for, like, four hours. But this t- kind of takes work. I mean, we're, we're still going strong. Let's just see what happens. Let's see what happens. Okay. So, uh, I, I promised this one last episode... This is the study looking at different kinds of protein, plant versus uh, dairy-based. And so the the title is called Differential Responses of Blood Essential Amino Acid Levels Following Ingestion of High-Quality Plant-Based Protein Blends Compared to Whey Protein, a Double-Blind Randomized Crossover Clinical Trial. So this was by Brennan and colleagues in 2019. And uh, so when, when we eat a meal with protein, uh, the post-meal increase in leucine plays an important role in stimulating muscle protein synthesis and, and thereby inducing, you know, the, the growth and or maintenance of, of muscle tissue. Um, and then similarly, plasma essential amino acids play an important role in supporting that process. So the, the leucine is really the trigger that initiates the process, but you, you do want to make sure you have plenty of essential amino acids around in the blood to support that. Now, the authors of this study, this one was fascinating. It's one of those ones where you read it and you read the results and you're like, what happened? And then you like really want to dig into the discussion. You know what I mean? Where there's no hypothesis that immediately jumps to mind, at least not for me. But what they do is they compared these different, uh, different types of protein um, and, and they looked at how they affected uh, post-meal amino acid levels. Uh, so they either took whey protein or three different plant-based protein blends. Here's where it gets interesting. So all four of the treatments had the same total amount of leucine, essential amino acids, and uh, they had a protein digestibility corrected amino acid score of one. So they did a lot of work to equate these proteins on some of the key factors that we would think are important for these post, uh, post-meal amino acid responses. Um, so as a result of that, the plant proteins required a total protein dose of around 33 or 34 grams, while the whey dose was only 24 total grams because they had to, they didn't have to do as many workarounds to try to make that whey uh, kind of equate with the others. So uh, in, in the four hours after feeding, um, now all the proteins did cause a notable increase in plasma levels uh, of leucine and essential amino acids. But despite equating all of those factors, uh, the whey protein values were significantly, and I would even say substantially higher than the three other proteins. So the bright side, if you're really into plant-based proteins, are are that these three appeared to be safe, well-tolerated, and they did cause the the increase in plasma leucine and plasma essential amino acids that you would be looking for. But what was interesting was despite all their efforts to equate those various factors, 
the way was still superior in terms of the magnitude of those amino acid responses. And uh, when I read that, I was like, why? And, and so th- they did a really nice job in the discussion, kind of talking through some of the potential factors. So, um, you know, there are um, nutritional components of a lot of plant-based proteins. The ones they particularly out, uh, uh, pointed out were things like phytates, tannins, and trypsin inhibitors that are kind of just naturally there um, that could potentially uh, affect the digestibility and the bioavailability of some of the amino acids within those proteins. They mentioned that you can alter some of these things by the level of hydrolysis that you do to the protein. Uh, So some like enzymatic hydrolysis in the process of preparing the protein. Um, But, but they did, they basically said we, we did some mild hydrolysis, but uh, apparently it just wasn't enough to achieve a bioequivalent effect uh, compared to the whey protein. And uh, they they did note like yeah we could have we could have gone a little bit um, more extreme with the hydrolysis but that usually results in uh, changes in flavor and bitterness that are are pretty uh, unfavorable if you're trying to make a palatable protein product so um, that was important stuff to keep in mind they also went through some literature I wasn't aware of where where they kind of compared the postprandial or post meal amino acid kinetics looking at plant derived proteins versus dairy derived proteins um and and so they they pointed out a few studies and and i'll link the original study so people can kind of follow up if they have an interest in it but um it it looks like based on the evidence they were uh presenting in the discussion that some plant-based proteins uh do tend to get sequestered into tissues at different rates than than dairy-based proteins so um for example they, they talked about a study where they found uh, it was by Boss et al., B-O-S and colleagues, where compared to milk amino acids, the soy amino acids uh, were actually digested more rapidly and more favorably directed toward deamination pathways and, and directed toward liver protein synthesis. So uh, favorably might not be the, the, the good word choice there, but m- more like uh, preferentially directed. And so w- what they found was... Um, Basically, those amino acids were getting digested at slightly different rates and therefore uh, being utilized in different ways and and essentially less available for that post-meal sustained. Uh, well, I, I don't even want to say sustained, but the, the magnitude of that post-meal increase in leucine and essential amino acids. But also, obviously, uh, you know, they didn't get to as high of peaks and then even at later time points were still lower than what you'd see in the whey, uh, the whey protein group. Um, so I guess, uh, to, to kind of wrap things up, uh, I, I feel like I always have to give these caveats. Um, I have literally zero issues with, uh, with plant-based proteins or plant-based diets. Um, there's all sorts of good reasons why somebody would, would go for a vegan diet, but this really does come back to that idea that it's important to, to really take a look at your protein sources. If you're avoiding all animal products, just to make sure that, uh, you're, you're getting all of your ducks in a row and you're making sure that you are really giving your body adequate uh, protein feedings. And there, there's a great article, I know we've talked about it, a great article on the site at strongerbyscience.com about uh, vegetarian and vegan diets. And one of the accommodations that you'll probably want to make uh, in a diet that's totally devoid of animal products, you'll probably want to skew toward a, a higher total protein intake and make those meals have a little bit more protein than you otherwise would if you were eating animal protein. So it doesn't mean, you know, if you're vegetarian or vegan that you're 
you're totally screwed and your diet's bad and you won't get huge. That, that there's, there's all sorts of people who are vegan that lift that have incredible results. We know it can be done and the science backs that up as well. You'll just want to make sure that you've, you've done the best you can in, in terms of arranging your diet, specifically your protein intake in an advantageous way. The one big caveat I do want to mention before I forget with this study, they were looking at post-meal amino acid levels in the blood. So it does take a little bit of extrapolation to say that that's necessarily going to have a notable effect on muscle protein synthesis. Another step of extrapolation to say that's necessarily going to affect uh, you know, hypertrophy or muscle protein balance over time. So that's an important caveat. Um, but but it does seem to fall in line with other studies that have looked at some of those those outcomes, specifically like muscle protein synthesis. Um, th- there there are several uh, labs that have done research showing that the you you can get you can induce the same magnitude of muscle protein synthesis with those plant based proteins, but it's probably going to take uh, a higher dose in most cases. All right, and you, you've got a study to share here, right? Yeah, so I uh, just want to do a very quick uh, little research review on proximity to failure and strength gains. So a uh, cu- couple months ago, um, I wrote an article and then also talked about on the podcast the concept of quote-unquote effective reps and just generally whether whether there's benefit to training to failure or closer to failure for for muscle growth. Um, but something that I didn't discuss then was the degree to which that matters for strength gains. Um, and there have been... So there were a couple studies, pretty high quality studies looking at this in 2017. And there were recently two more studies kind of on the same topic put out this month um, looking at kind of do you get larger strength gains on a per set basis from training closer to failure and kind of can you maximize strength gains on a per set basis staying really really far from failure um so i just wanted to talk about that a little bit so a good place to start would be uh, a meta-analysis by davies um the title was effect of of training leading to repetition failure on muscular strength a systematic review and meta-analysis um, there were kind of two sections of that meta. The, he looked at both volume equated and non-volume equated studies and basically found that within the literature up to that point, um, strength gains were pretty similar whether or not sets were taken to failure. Um, one thing to note is if you do pull up that meta analysis, there were some statistical issues with it when it was first published. They since issued an erratum. So if you pull up the original meta-analysis, I I think they conclude that there are some differences either with volume equated or non-equated. But when they re-ran the stats and did it the right way, they basically found like, oh shit, we fucked up. Uh, There are no differences here. So that's a pretty good place to start. Um, But that was just looking at failure versus non-failure training, not you know, submaximal training, not to failure, but just at different proximities from failure. And so uh, kind of within that world, there's, I guess, one researcher slash research group worth paying attention to here. Uh, and that is Pereja Blanco. So of these four studies I'm going to talk about, I think he was the lead author on two of them and the senior author on two of them. Um, and so one of them, the title is The Effects of Velocity Loss During 
during body mass prone grip pull-up training on strength and endurance performance. That one was just recently published this month. Another one, the title is Low Velocity Loss Induces Similar Strength Gains to Moderate Velocity Loss During Resistance Training. That was also just published this month. And then the two published in 2017. One was Effects of Velocity Loss During Resistance Training on Athletic Performance, Strength Gains, and Muscle Adaptations. Um, And then the other one, the last one, was Effects of Velocity Loss During Resistance Training on Performance in Professional Soccer Players. And so these studies were all slightly different in in the way they went about doing things, but the, the core commonality between them was they, for the most part, didn't have people training to failure. Um, they did hit failure for some of the sets in one of the studies, but for the most part, this was non-failure training, and they were using percentage velocity loss to basically determine how far away from failure people stayed. And so when you're doing velocity-based training, if you're trying to move every rep as fast as possible, bar speed and rep speed is going to slow down as you get closer and closer to failure. Um, Importantly, that takes place pretty linearly, not perfectly linearly, but pretty, pretty close. Um, And so, for example, if you wanted to squat uh, and you're starting with a pretty light load that you can move at one meter per second, and, you know, you want to do a set where you're um, you're doing a little something, but it's not particularly challenging. You're not going particularly close to failure. You could go with a 30% velocity loss cutoff there. So you would do reps until your velocity device tells you like, oh, you dip below 0.7 meters per second. Stop the set here. Or if you wanted to go quite a bit closer to failure, you could have a velocity loss threshold of 60%. So you would do reps until your velocity dropped below 0.4 meters per second, and that would get you quite a bit closer to failure. So it's um, it's not exactly the same thing as RPE or reps in reserve, but it, it kind of accomplishes the same thing. I personally like reps in reserve, but it's it kind of gets at the same concept. It's using, uh, it's using a measure to auto-regulate and keep you either further or closer to failure. And so in... The uh, In the recent study that used pull-ups, the velocity loss thresholds they used were 25% versus 50%. So a 25% velocity loss in pull-ups um, will get you eh, about halfway to failure, give or take. And a 50% velocity loss will get you almost all the way to failure, but not quite there. At least uh, in the population they were working with who could do about 15 bodyweight pull-ups, uh, give or take. Um one of the other studies they looked at, it was using squats with a 5 versus 20% velocity loss threshold. A 5% velocity loss is not much at all. Um, you're accruing essentially no fatigue if velocity is just decreasing 5% versus 20%. Like that's that's a fairly moderate velocity loss. Um, the one from this group that gets cited the most often, I think, Uh, was also using squats, and it was using a 20 versus 40% velocity loss threshold. Um, This one included training up to 85% of 1RM, and a 40% velocity loss with training that close to 1RM is generally going to result in failure. So uh, in that group, the 20% group never failed. The 40% group, I think, reached the point of failure on like 20 or 30% of their total training sets. Uh, And then the other group, um, or the other study, was using loads between 50 and 70% 1RM on squats in professional soccer players with the 15 versus with uh, 15 versus 30% velocity loss thresholds. Um, 
15% there is going to be a, a pretty moderate, like quite easy velocity loss threshold. 30% is, is going to be still fairly easy if you're training at 50% 1RM. And at 70%, it's going to start getting kind of challenging, but not particularly close to failure. So those are the four studies. Um, they use different velocity loss thresholds and consequently different proximities to failure in all four of them. Um, and all of them, importantly here, matched for sets. So they didn't match for volume load or match for total reps. Basically, there was both both groups would use the same intensity, but one group would just go a little bit closer to failure and the other group would stay further away from failure, and they did the same number of sets. And in all four of these studies, um, there weren't significant differences in strength gains. And in a couple of the studies, there were non-significant differences in strength gains that actually leaned in favor of the group staying a little bit further away from failure. Um, that was the case in the pull-up study. So the the 25% velocity loss pull-up group um, put a little bit more on their estimated pull-up 1RM than the 50% velocity loss group. Uh, in the 20 versus 40% velocity loss squat study, um, there was a non-significant difference leaning in favor of the 20% velocity loss group. And the same was true in the 15 versus 30% velocity loss squat study. Um, maybe slightly larger strength gains in the 15% velocity loss uh, group. So basically, we have a meta-analysis saying that like, hey, whether or not training terminates in failure or not doesn't really seem to have much of an impact on performance. And here we have four more studies, which mostly were using two groups not training to failure, but still equating for sets, finding pretty much the same thing, or maybe even it being slightly better to stay even further away from failure um, versus, you know, not going to failure, but pushing kind of close to failure. And so I, I think that... Um, I don't think this is going to just revolutionize the way I approach training or coaching, but it at least opens me up to the idea more that kind of like high reps in reserve or low RPE work is maybe slightly more, more useful or beneficial than I had previously given it credit for. So I know that kind of the way that I had thought about training before, like using reps in reserve or RPE is that like, an RPE of seven was seen as kind of like normal training that's kind of on the easy side. Uh, eight was kind of like the default of, hey, we're just going to do a normal ass set. This is probably going to be 60% of the training you do. An RPE of nine or 10 was considered pretty hard and like, yeah, you don't want to do this all the time. But, you know, especially like nine work, you can do that fairly frequently and, and save tens for, um, you know, maybe once a week, once a month, not super frequently. And that was just kind of the conceptual schema I was working with. And in all of these studies, the lower velocity loss condition would have been training at an RPE of like five or six or below, which at least in my opinion, like the the way I always approach training is like, you know, if you're at an RPE of five, if you have like five or more reps in reserve, it's a fucking warm up set. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of times with clients that are deloading, I'll be like, eh, keep, you know, keep it four or five and above, you know. But yeah, you wouldn't think that to be a particularly stressful perturbation. Correct. Uh, and so in all of these studies, and, and I'll note, none of the subjects in any of the studies were super elite 
strength athletes by any means. Uh, in the 20 versus 40% velocity loss squat study, I think they had like some decent degree of, of training experience, but they weren't super strong. The pull-up study actually, um, they were surprisingly good at pull-ups. Like I said, they were averaging about 15 body weight pull-ups pre-training, which, you know, that's not like an elite gymnast, but that's, that's honestly not a bad pull-up number. Um, but yeah, they weren't super elite. So, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit hesitant to, to attempt to generalize, but it does at least open me up to the idea that, you know, probably super low RP or super high RIR training probably still isn't great as like the base of a year round program. Cause I do think that that's going to be too easy on a per set basis to really cause much muscle growth or and certainly it's not going to be challenging enough on a per set basis to maximize muscle growth. Um, so I wouldn't really want that to be like the core of like, you know, a month after month, year long type training program. Um, but it does open me up to the idea that if you are going into like a solely strength focused block and you want to make sure that training is as high of quality as possible and you're not accruing and accumulating a bunch of fatigue that's going to fuck with your performance in the gym. You know, maybe if you would have been doing 80% for sets of five, maybe 80% for sets of two or three is just as good and maybe even preferable in some circumstances. And then I was thinking through the numbers and I was like, hmm, 80% for doubles versus 80% for fives. That sounds a hell of a lot like what Boris Shako does. Because <laughs> that's, I mean, if you if you pull up most Shako programs, that's you're seeing a shit ton of doubles and triples at eighty uh, percent. So maybe he was just way ahead of the curve on this. Um, but yeah, and I think in terms of like a concrete takeaway uh, is if you're not too worried about growth at the moment. So uh, there have been, I think we answered a question on the last podcast of someone who is really happy with the weight class they're in and they don't, you know, they're trying to get stronger without putting on more muscle. And I said, eh, you know, maybe stay a little bit further away from failure Eh, probably still get some strength adaptations while minimizing muscle growth. That makes me, these studies make me feel a little bit more confident in that recommendation now that, you know, you probably can get pretty good strength effects as long as loading is appropriate while still staying quite far from failure. Um, and I think another place where this, where this information could be useful is people who are having trouble recover, like significant trouble recovering from strength work that they do. Um, whether that be because like, you know, you're just the type of person that if you go above 80% of your max, you start getting worn down pretty quickly. Like that isn't super common, but happens to, to a non-negligible amount of people or, you know, maybe your life's just super busy. You can't get in bed that much. Work is stressful. You have a lot of family shit going on. You know, life happens and you're having difficulty recovering from heavier training closer to failure. Strength is a bigger goal for you. You don't have huge hypertrophy aspirations. Maybe a way that you can still, at least in the short to moderate term, get pretty good strength effects while being able to dramatically cut back on the amount of stress you're accumulating, like in each training session would just be to, you know, basically take your current program, uh, take the percentages you're going to be training with, take the number of sets you would have otherwise been doing, and just like knock two or three reps off of all of them. Stay quite a bit further from failure. It's going to make your workouts a lot easier. Probably not going to grow much from it, but at least in terms of strength effects, again, in the short to moderate term, should work pretty well. 
Um, that's that's at least an idea that I'm kind of more open to than than I think I was previously before looking at this literature. It's interesting stuff. All right, so I have a little research uh, roundup here. Couple recent studies on artificial sweeteners. And the reason I'm talking about this topic, uh, I actually did get a kind of related question in the uh, Q&A submission portal. So uh, Kavada asked uh, a little bit about artificial sweeteners. Where do they fit in when it comes to weight loss? Uh, Do they have any negative effects other than dental health is what the question said. I was under the impression that dentists were pretty fond of artificial sweeteners. Is Is that not the case? I have no idea. Yeah, so I've always been under the impression that from a dental person, I mean, it's been years since I did my dentistry schooling. <laughs> That's a joke. We, uh, we should hit up our uh, our buddy Dave McConey. Ah, oh, we should. Yeah, but my understanding was that this switch from like sugar gum to sugar free gum that that was you know includes non nutritive sweeteners that they were stoked about that. Uh, now certainly diet sodas are are quite acidic, I believe, and maybe that would be bad for tooth enamel. Literally, my my expertise here is coming from stuff I've heard on commercials on television about toothpastes. <laughs> so <laughs> the, the, the only reason I bring it up is because I was under the impression that artificial sweeteners were viewed as pretty uh, benign when it comes to dental stuff. But we'll check with Dave and we'll, and we'll check back in. Uh, but I did want to talk about some of the common concerns people have with uh, artificial sweeteners. So... Uh, I'm going to say artificial sweetener, uh, but really what we're talking about is a non-nutritive sweeteners or extremely, extremely low calorie sweeteners, um, you know, because technically things like stevia wouldn't necessarily be, con- be considered artificial. Um, but basically, we're talking about sweeteners that are so extremely sweet that they are able to provide the sweetening effect of sugar while providing essentially no calories, basically so few calories you just wouldn't even bother um, to, 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 to calculate them. Um, when it comes to common concerns with, with non-nutritive or artificial sweeteners, people always bring up stuff about cancer risk. They talk about its potential effects on appetite, uh, glycemic control or blood sugar control. And then also more, more recently, the gut microbiome has become a big topic. So there was a recent study about stevia extract looking at glucose responses and energy intake. So it was a three-arm crossover trial. Um, it is kind of interesting. People lean on stevia when they're like, ah, the artificial stuff scares me, but stevia is natural, so I'm good. In reality, stevia, we really don't have a lot of research on it compared to some of the other sweeteners. Like, I feel better about aspartame than stevia, theoretically, just because there's been like a billion aspartame. Did I say aspartame? Yeah. There's been like a billion aspartame studies. I feel like, and I could be completely wrong here, so dear listener, don't put any stock in this whatsoever, but I feel like I saw a review a while back um, looking at the evidence related to artificial sweetener consumption and cancer. And they were like, yeah, we have a bunch of studies on aspartame. It seems fine. We have a few on sucralose. So far, it seems fine. Uh, A sulfame potassium. Don't have that much on it, but from what we have, it seems fine. Only have one study on on stevia, and it seems like it causes stomach cancer. (laughs) I didn't see that one. I I could be completely making that up. 
I think I read that back in like 2014, 2015. Um, and, and, and the authors of the review said like, hey, don't put a ton of stock in this. This was a reasonably small study. We don't have much confidence in these results. But it, it's pretty much saying exactly what you were like. All of the rest, there was there was a reasonable amount of evidence and stevia. They were like, we don't have much and what we have doesn't look great, but uh, not going to throw out any super strong conclusions yet. Yeah, I, I just I find it very ironic that people just lean on stevia because of that, like appeal to nature fallacy of like, ah, it's got to be the best one. And in reality, like I'm much more interested in the ones that we have a ton of, of data on. I mean, the other thing about stevia is it's fucking disgusting. <laughs> that, that's a good scientific argument. I, I mean, like sucralose tastes good. It's not as good as sugar, but I I legitimately think it's quite tasty. Sucralose is good. Aspartame yeah. isn't great. It has like kind of a, a chemically aftertaste, I would say. Um, but you can hide it in a, in a dish pretty well. It's it's usable. Stevia is disgusting. Uh, it's like I would say its flavor profile is is one part sweet to like four parts bitter. Yeah, it's it's just not good. Yeah, I trust people less when they tell me they use stevia <laughs> because that that reveals to me a capacity f- for self-deception that makes me doubt everything that comes out of their mouth. That's an interesting outlook on life. Now, that's kind of sarcastic. Don't send me hate mail, <laughs> but but only kind of um, <laughs> there is a kernel of truth. I'm not going to lie. Stevia is so nasty. This is a funny story a lot of people don't know. Uh, I forget which artificial sweetener it is, but it's one of the big ones. But the, the story behind its discovery was there was like a, a chemistry student, like a, a grad student who's just like working all hours, day and night. And, you know, their their advisor was leaving for the day and was like, hey, I'm, I'm heading out. Make sure you test those samples, though, um, for whatever kind of chemical testing they were doing and it was either the advisor or the student english was was their second language and one of them had like an accent and so the way the grad student registered the instruction was make they sure you test was taste yeah they said make sure you taste those samples and this as the story goes the next day the advisor goes in, comes in and the student goes yeah i tasted those samples they were really sweet like super sweet and he was like holy shit you ate that <laughs> like i don't know if you can i'm 85% sure that was saccharin. I, I think that might be the case, yeah. But anyway, l- let's get back to Stevia. Um, what they did was a crossover study here, um, and, and they did three preloads. So the general idea here with, with 30 participants is they brought them into the lab three different times, and they gave them a preload. So there was a standardized breakfast and then a preload where they consumed either water, a 60-gram sugar dose, or a stevia dose of, of equivalent sweetness, uh, approximately. Um, and then after a period of waiting time, they had an ad libitum pizza lunch, basically meaning there's a bunch of pizza out, eat as much as you want. And then they also had them do, uh, they looked at some blood, bl- blood glucose levels um, after the meal, and they had them fill out a food log throughout the rest of that day to try to get an idea of, well... Maybe it, instead of affecting what they ate during the ad libitum meal in the lab, maybe they compensated later in the day or something like that. So that that's like the basic idea of the, the key things they were looking at here. 
And what they found was for the, the different preloads, whether it was water, sugar, or stevia, um, there was not a st- statistically significant effect on how much pizza was eaten at the subsequent uh, meal in the lab, nor was there a significant effect on the calories consumed over the course of that entire day. Um, what, what they found was that the, uh, the, basically the subjective scores for hunger and desire to eat were lower after the stevia preload compared to the water preload. Um, when it came to the glucose levels after the meal, they found, uh, obviously they adjusted for the fact that one group had a huge dose of sugar right before, but after accounting for that, they basically found that the, the post-meal or the post-prandial glucose levels were not significantly different between, uh, between those interventions. So the, the conclusions they drew here were that stevia lowered appetite sensation and did not further increase food intake or blood glucose levels after the meal. Because that's one of the things a lot of people worry about with these, um, with artificial sweeteners. A lot of people worry if I get this sense of immense sweetness in the absence of calories, is that going to basically make me hungrier or make my body seek out these calories that are uh, apparently missing. You know what I mean? And the the research to date would not seem to indicate that that is a thing that happens. Um, there was another recent study shifting gears from stevia to sucralose. Now, this one looked at, at those glycemic responses as well, but it also looked at the gut microbiome. And so, Greg, as always, you let the listeners down. You promised we wouldn't talk about feces, but here we are. Uh, or did I promise we wouldn't? Somebody promised we wouldn't, but I we're talking feces. We, I promised we would. Yeah. So okay. Maybe, yeah, you're right then. So we're talking feces. If we've interrupted your romantic evening, I, I do apologize. But uh, what we've got here, we're looking at uh, sucralose, also known as Splenda, seeing how it would affect these glycemic uh, responses. Now with this one, it was not like an acute thing. What they did was uh, they, they checked out their. They, they did an initial oral glucose tolerance test. Then they gave them a high dose of sucralose um, for a seven-day period, and then they brought them back and they redid the oral glucose tolerance test to look at that glycemic control, uh, those variables. Um, They also did a fecal sample before and after that seven-day supplementation period, and it was a big dose of sucralose. It was equivalent to about 20 diet sodas per day, and and this was a placebo-controlled trial. And uh, so what they found basically was compared to placebo, those seven days of sucralose consumption did not seem to affect um, the the glycemic control variables that they looked at and also did not have a meaningful effect on the gut microbiome. So some general points I want to make about artificial sweeteners, um, you know, there have been several studies looking at a variety of sweeteners and their, their relationship to cancer risk. Uh, a few of them have reported, um, like a few select studies for a variety of different sweeteners have reported an increased risk of various cancers, much of that obviously in rodent studies. Um, but but most of these studies have found no relationship. And uh, the, the few, I, I, I haven't looked into the, the kind of aftermath of that stevia study that you mentioned. So I just did, because I don't want to be an alarmist. Okay. Um. It was it was a dose response study in vitro, um, looking to see if if stevia extract could cause mutagenic effects, like whether it could cause gene mutations, which could potentially lead to cancer. Um, and it can, but at a dosage or a concentration that would be 
similar to approximately 4,000 times the like recommended upper intake level. That would be a high intake. Yeah. So, uh, and these are cells in a dish right. in vitro. Right. So to, to, uh, to nuance what I said previously, all of the human research on stevia right now, still very limited. doesn't seem to cause cancer, but don't consume 4,000 times as much of it as is recommended. Because, I think, I think because a, maybe then it could a very reasonable recommendation to stay under that 4,000 times limit. Um, but, but with these various sweeteners, you know, there are some select studies here and there that do, you know, you'll see the big headline that says, Oh, apparently it does give you cancer. They're typically using models that aren't easy to extrapolate to what a real human being would do in some, there was an aspartame paper. uh, I think it was the aspartame paper where there was an increase in, uh, some type of cancer in, you know, basically in rodents that were bred to get cancer. And it was a type of cancer for which there's no human equivalent. Like there's just absolutely nothing in our physiology that would be considered a similar cancer for aspartame specifically as well. I, so this isn't an area of the literature I particularly care that much about. Um, but my understanding was that essentially like the the primary enzyme or enzymatic pathway that one would use to metabolize aspartame either doesn't exist in rodents or is dramatically less active. Uh, and therefore, you know, you with a lot of things, you can kind of assume that at least to some degree, what we find in humans will will generalize maybe strongly maybe maybe weakly to humans like that's that's why a lot of like exploratory drug studies use rodents as as subjects uh but my understanding was that like due to those metabolic differences linked specifically to aspartame metabolism you really shouldn't at all attempt to generalize aspartame studies from rodents to humans yeah, I mean, there there are many cases in which you'll see, like like I said, those little one or two studies here or there, and then the scientific community usually goes like, come on, like, you, you knew that that wasn't the right animal model, or you know that that cancer is not relevant to human health, or you know that that dose is absurd. There's usually, for all the studies where we do find that, there's usually some degree of backlash where the, the scientific community basically says, like, come on, like, that, that headline's crazy. Um, and so like there have been a number of good uh, reviews and meta-analyses indicating that for for basically for all the sweeteners that are out there on the market currently, we feel pretty confident about their safety in general, particularly as it as it pertains to cancer. Like, like we've mentioned, there are some some sweeteners with a lot more evidence than others, which is something uh, useful to keep in mind. But I do think a lot of people that are a bit um, distrusting of large bodies uh, whether they're governments or international health organizations they're like you guys don't have the guts to actually ban something and if there's bad evidence you'll just you'll just kind of scoff at it and ignore it but there is precedent like that the fda has banned a non-nutritive sweetener before and so uh there was one called cyclamate that uh i think in the u.s they banned it in, I believe, 1969 after some evidence that it increased bladder cancer uh, in rats. Now, the European Union did not ban it and has not banned it. And so uh, I, I didn't do a deep dive into the cyclamate literature, but it looks like most of the scientific community believes that 
it probably shouldn't be banned and that they're not super concerned about it, which is why there are governments all over the world that have been like, ah, we we saw that study. We're not super worried about it. And they, they neglected to ban it. And I, I don't even really know how often it's used in other countries. Like, but but in any case, the, the point is like there is precedent where the, the US government, the FDA would look at the research and say, uh, we feel uncomfortable about that. Let's go ahead and ban it. So I, I think that does at least a little bit to counteract that th- that kind of notion. Like, uh, the the big food companies are too powerful. The government would never stand up to them. Like, it's been done. The fact that like all these other countries, like if they are using it to a meaningful amount in their food supply, that alone should probably be pretty telling. Like, if if we haven't identified any population level issues with it in those countries that use it, like it's probably not that big a deal. If you look at, you know, 30 governments and 29 of them didn't think there was sufficient cause to ban it. Like I I don't want anyone in the European union right now to be hearing this and going like, Oh my God, what? But I don't know if anybody's using it, but in any case there, there have been instances where people say like, ah, I don't like this evidence. We're going to go ahead and ban it. So like the stuff that is, on the market, the sweeteners that are out there and not banned, like you can feel pretty good that that national and international organizations ha- have bothered to look through the evidence and make an informed decision about whether or not it should be on the market and permissible to sell as a food additive. Um, now there there have been getting away from cancer. There there have been some researchers and and, and non researchers who suggest that maybe fake sweeteners may mess up our metabolism or mess up our gut microbiome and that these things will affect our blood sugar control or maybe uh, affect our appetite, causing us to overeat. There have been some cross-sectional studies that say like, oh, look at that. People who have artificial sweeteners tend to have higher BMI. Looks like there's causation there. Um, Generally speaking, the real and that's a ridiculous premise because obviously you're thinking, well, who's consuming a ton of these products, right? Man, I can't put my finger on who, but someone famously said, I've never seen a skinny person drinking Diet Coke. <laughs> wasn't that wasn't that Trump? He was. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. So, he, I mean, he's been way ahead of the curve on a lot of this health research. He he called out that reverse causation, which basically what we're getting at, like a cross-sectional study like that. Probably a lot of people who have weight loss as a goal say, I better you know, switch over to some of these diet sodas and, and, you know, reduce sugar products that have artificial sweeteners in them. So a lot of the actual longitudinal controlled evidence shows us that those concerns about, you know, messing up, uh, appetite regulation or glycemic control, they, 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 we really don't see notable issues in the most well-controlled studies that actually assess it. And, you know, if we're talking about a good randomized longitudinal trial versus a cross-sectional study, I'm taking that randomized trial 11 times out of 10, you know. So those concerns, while while I certainly understand the concerns at the surface level where you're thinking like, oh, well, if my body thinks there's sugar but there's no calories, maybe that's going to cause me to overeat. Um, that doesn't appear to be justified by the research. And there is a great deal of research looking at that. When it comes to the microbiome stuff, I mean, honestly, we, we, we did a great interview uh, with Gabrielle Fundaro or Fundero. Uh, but but she, uh, she was talking to us and, and kind of confirmed my, what I suspected, which is people who, who make really bold claims about what, what a good or, or a bad change in microbiome looks like are a lot of times getting a little bit ahead of the science 
you know, like we, we can do some of these interventions like, and we say, oh, okay, well, there's a little change there in the general makeup of the gut microbiome, but it's still really difficult for us in many circumstances to say whether or not that change was good or bad and whether or not it was good or bad enough to make a functional difference in anything we care about. So there are some studies looking at changes in gut microbiome. Um, and you know, there, there is some evidence that there are changes for a few of them. Um, I had a note about that. Um, where did it go? Yeah, yeah. So it might be altered by some degree, to some degree, by saccharin, sucralose, and stevia. Much of that research uh, showing alterations in the gut microbiome, a lot of that has been done in animal models. Uh, so, for example, the human stuff with sucralose looks pretty good in terms of gut microbiome, at least the most recent studies I've seen. But in any case, just because there's a change in the gut microbiome, that that doesn't immediately mean like, oh, crap, there's a huge problem here. And and so I think sometimes people get a little bit too overzealous about interpreting that and and assuming that it's going to cause all sorts of problems. So for now, um, based on the evidence we have, I I think the evidence related to most of the common artificial sweeteners looks pretty, pretty damn good. I mean, I consume artificial sweeteners within reasonable doses, never think twice about it. Um, they, they don't seem to induce uh, any kind of really meaningful negative effects when we look at even fairly large samples in the controlled trials that have been done. The one caveat there, something we've alluded to, you can't just say non-nutritive sweetener and assume that all of them have all the same effects, right? So it, it is possible that that some do have a, a more notable effect on the gut microbiome than others. or And that's just for example. So you got to fight that temptation to say what's true for one non-nutritive sweetener is true for all of them. Because these are very, very diverse compounds and molecules. The thing they have in, mo- in common is that they're really damn sweet. And that's about where the similarities end. Completely different compounds. All right. Uh, I, too, have one final segment here. Uh, well, I'm also going to play us out, talk about food a little bit. Um, but in terms of, of research-based stuff, so um, there was an article published on a personal blog back in November that I just recently became aware of because I, I think it was updated February 5th um, and, and got picked up by some bigger sites and was shared around a little bit more than uh, so I recently just became aware of this, but the title of the article is Matthew Walker's Why We Sleep is Riddled with Scientific and Factual Errors. Uh, the author is Alexi Guzzi, uh, and it was published on his personal site. Uh, and so if you didn't know, uh, Matthew Walker is probably probably the most well-known sleep researcher in the world. Uh, he wrote a popular book called Why We Sleep, which is what this article is uh, criticizing, at least debunking, I think would be a more accurate description, or at least like debunking a lot of the claims in it. Um, But yeah, Matthew Walker wrote a popular book. It was a bestseller. Um, He got a TED Talk. Uh, His TED Talk is one of the more popular TED Talks that has occurred. I think the title is like Why Sleep is Your Superpower, so, you know, very Ted-esque title. Um, I could have, I mean, this was big. Like, I could, I'm pretty sure I heard Tom York from Radiohead talking about this in an interview. Oh, geez. Like, I mean, th- this thing made ripples. It was no, a yeah. big book. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
let's see. So on on the back of all of that success, he parlayed a career at Stanford into a job at Google. I think he may still work at Stanford. Um, but anyway, Matthew Walker, huge, huge deal in the sleep world. Uh, he's published a lot. Like he's published in you know virtually every high impact journal where one would publish sleep research, and has also you know parlayed that into becoming the closest thing to a sleep public intellectual that there could be. Um, so anyway, th- he wrote this book, Why We Sleep, and the the author of this article, Alexi Guzzi, went through, just looked at the first chapter, um, picked out a lot of unambiguous, concrete statements, and just showed them to be complete lies. Uh, there, there's really no other way to express it. So I, I don't want to, you know, basically go point by point through this entire article, but uh, one of the one, like, so one of the statements made in the book on page three in chapter one is routinely sleeping less than six or seven hours a night diminishes your immune system more than doubling your risk of cancer. Okay, so that is a pretty strong, unambiguous claim. Uh, Matthew Walker doesn't give a citation for that claim in his book. Uh, so the, the author of this article, Alexi Guzzi, went through, uh, tried to see what is the best evidence that is out there that could possibly relate to that claim. Uh, he found a systematic review from 2018 um, looking at like all of the observational research that existed, looking at the association between sleep duration and cancer. Uh, and so, again, the exact claim was sleeping less than six or seven hours per night demolishes your immune system more than doubles your cancer risk. Okay, so take a guess what the actual odds ratio was comparing uh, six hours of sleep versus eight hours of sleep in that systematic review and meta-analysis. I'll let you think about that for a second. Again, Matthew Walker's claim is a two-fold increase, so an odds ratio of two would correspond to that. So just think for a second, what do you think the actual odds ratio is? I'm going to guess 1.95 rounded up to two. See, that's not a that's not a terrible guess, but it's actually 1.01. Uh, which, for those keeping score at home, is not a two-fold increase in cancer risk, but is, in fact, a 1% <laughs> increase in cancer risk. <laughs> so, no, like, I mean, approximately double. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, that was that was the worst. There was another one where he talked about how sleeping five hours per night doubles all-cause mortality risk. Um, again... The, the author of this article pulled up a recent systematic review looking at that and found that basically the the nadir of the all-cause mortality sleep duration curve was about seven hours per night and that five hours per night and eight hours per night were actually associated with virtually identical all-cause mortality, um, which, uh, you know, is considerably different than the claim that you double all-cause mortality sleeping less than seven to eight hours per night. Anyway, so there are a lot of examples. I'm not going to ruin the article for you. Go read it. It's It may be the most brutal intellectual takedown I've ever witnessed in all of my days. And to be clear, he didn't go through the entire book, nor did he cherry pick the most extreme claims. Everything he pulled out in this article is just from the first chapter of that book, which is fucking brutal 
Um, but anyway, one of the things brought up in that article, which, you know, to, to bring it home and make it relevant for you guys, is um, one of the studies he cites, uh, one of seemingly few claims that actually did have a citation along with it, was uh, he was talking about the risk of injury in athletes based on uh, how much they slept per night. So the study was chronic lack of sleep is associated with increased sports injuries in adolescent athletes. Um, so the basically claiming that sleeping less increases your injury rate. And the figure in the book shows a nice linear decrease in injury rate as sleep duration increases. So at six hours per night, looks like injury rate was about 75%. At seven hours per night, about 60%. At eight hours per night, about 35%. And a little under 20% at nine hours per night. It looks nice. Nice, smooth, linear decrease in injury rates of the athletes in this sample uh, as sleep duration increased. Beautiful so, trend. Very easy to explain. Correct. Um, so the issue is, in that actual study, there was a five-hour-per-night cohort as well, um, which did have a higher injury rate than the like eight- and nine-hour groups, um, but it was like it was also like 60-65%. So like slightly lower injury rates at five hours versus six hours. And, you know, it wasn't a huge difference. The overall trend was still there where athletes that slept more were less likely to sustain an injury. Um, but it's it's really not a good look when you're trying to make a case. And the totality of the data in a study still supports the broad argument you're trying to make. But then you just disregard one of the groups because it doesn't make the trend line as pretty. Um, so that yeah, it's just clipped. It's just right. not in there. Yeah, which I mean, that's that's arguably scientific malpractice. Like it's it's not a good look. But anyway, so so that is that's what made me want to talk about this on the podcast because um, we have had a long running injury series on the site, um, which realistically kind of should have all been published within a month, but I've been busy. My co-author on that, Andrew Patton, he's been busy. Uh, it's It honestly has fallen more on me than him, the delays. Uh, but the final injury part of that series is going to be up, I think, within the next month or so. It's, it's written, just need to get it edited and formatted. Um, so since that's coming up, I was like, oh, injuries, this is interesting. So I wanted to see... You know, so Matthew Walker just cites this one study in the book uh, and misrepresents it. I wanted to see, like, hey, you know, what does the injury have to say about sleep duration, sleep disturbances, and whether that increases or affects your uh, your injury risk? And so uh, that wasn't something that Andrew and I looked at in our study. So, you know, nice little additional injury content to add. And so I found three fairly recent um, systematic reviews and meta-analyses looking at uh, whether sleep affects injury risk. So the first one is titled Sleep Problems and Work Injuries, colon, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. And so um, and I, f I feel like for all of these, like just one sentence from the abstract explains them pretty well. Um, so for the first one, 27 observational studies in of 
almost 270,000 participants, so shit ton of participants. Uh, 27 observational studies that provided 54 relative risk estimates were included. The findings of the meta-analysis suggested that workers with sleep problems had a 1.62 times higher risk of being injured than workers without sleep problems. So relative risk 1.62, relatively tight 95% confidence interval, so between 1.43 and 1.84, so roughly a 60% increase in injury risk from having sleep problems. So that's not just, you know, short sleep duration, that's really kind of any sort of sleep problem, uh, but 60% injury risk with a relatively tight confidence interval, that's, uh, that's noteworthy, I would say. Second one, um... Chronic lack of sleep is associated with increased sports injury in adolescence, a systematic review and meta-analysis. Um, so from this one, of the 907 identified articles, seven met inclusion criteria in our random effects model, adolescents who chronically slept poorly were more likely to be injured than those who slept well. Odds ratio, 1.58. Confidence interval much bigger this time between 1.05 and 2.73. So because of that big confidence interval, that, that's a much less precise measure, um, and it was barely significant, so p-value of 0.03, but the uh, the actual like relative increase in injury risk seemed to be pretty similar, so about a 60% increase. And then the third one, sleep problems and injury risk among juveniles, a systematic review and meta-analysis of observational studies. A total of 10 observational studies involving about 73,000 participants were identified. Meta-analysis findings suggested that juveniles with sleep problems had a 1.64 times higher risk of injury than juveniles without sleep problems, and pretty tight confidence interval there as well, so about 1.44 to about 1.85. So none of these... None of these are looking at adult athletes or, you know, even better yet would be adult strength athletes or lifters. Um, So, you know, work injuries and then two studies in youth and adolescent. So, you know, not necessarily the best the best populations uh, for for us. But I think it's noteworthy that they all come to similar similar estimates of the increased risk. So all three of them seemed like. Uh, basically sleeping poorly or not sleeping enough increased your injury risk by about 60%, give or take. Um, and two of those had reasonably nice tight confidence intervals. So, so that's a, that's a pretty non-negligible increase in injury risk just from sleeping poorly. One of the things that, uh, one of the things we've talked about on the podcast before and that, uh, I was recently, well, both of us were recently involved in a conversation about, uh, on Omar Esoff's YouTube channel was kind of like, what is the nature of pain and injury? And so if they defined it in some of these studies as like, you know, an injury is like, are you experiencing pain for a long time? One thing to note is that sleep, like poor sleep, not sleeping enough can increase the perception of pain. So like, you know, maybe there wasn't, maybe it didn't increase the risk of like structural damage by 60%, but you know, maybe it increased the risk of structural damage by 40% and the then the other 20% is just an increase in pain sensitivity because you're sleeping poorly. Like that, that's something that is, um, is very possible at least. Uh, but it does seem like, here's the frustrating thing. There, there seems to be a, a a whole lot of evidence in a lot of different populations that sleeping less and sleeping poorly does increase your risk of injury. 
Uh, and Matthew Walker could have pulled those meta-analyses and been like, hey, we have a lot of systematic evidence in different populations with very large samples that if you sleep less, increases your injury risk by like 60%. Like, that, that is a claim that could be made that would have a lot of evidence backing it up. And instead, what he chose to do is, like, use one single study. Another thing to note about the study he used is the nine-hour group with the really, really low injury risk, like 18% injury risk. That was based on one injury out of six subjects. Which, like, bro, if you can cite a fucking meta-analysis that has 268,000 participants... And you go with one study where one of your groups has six subjects. It's not a good look. Anyway, um, TLDR here is you want to reduce your injury risk. Sleeping more certainly doesn't hurt. Um, a lot of the things Matthew Walker says about sleep, broad message that, hey, sleep is good and you should do it. Probably correct. The uh, individual claims made in his book, especially kind of the bigger, more... I guess inflammatory ones, eh, maybe don't put a ton of stock in them. And I'd really recommend reading uh, Alex uh, Alexi Guzzi's article. It's uh, like I said, it, it's absolutely brutal. It really was. Yeah, I didn't realize that that was one out of six. I, he, I saw in Alexi's article, he said one out of six. I thought he was just presenting the the ratio. I didn't realize he literally meant there were six subjects in that particular category. Uh, you have a coach's corner coming up. As you get into that, I will look back at the article just to verify, but I'm 90% sure it was just six subjects. Yeah. So th this coach's corner is extremely brief. Um, and it does relate. Uh, so Greg mentioned we were on that round table on, how do you say Omar's last name? Esoff? Yeah. So we were on Omar Esoff's, uh, YouTube channel and Greg, Greg and I were kind of hanging around. We, you know, we didn't uh, steal the spotlight. Uh, it was a really good conversation. If you haven't listened, you should check it out. You're grinning over there. Did you get your answer? Here's a direct quote. As an aside, that nine hours of sleep column is based on exactly one child being injured out of six children who reported sleeping for nine hours. Oh my goodness. Wow. Okay. Well, there you go. My, my brain is so forgiving that I just immediately edited that to say like, oh, that's about one in six. <laughs> Jeez. No. <laughs> <laughs> I need to really get a more cynical brain, don't I? That's, um, that's why you and I complement each other well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyway, we, we're in that uh, round table. If you haven't listened to it, it's great. Uh, a, a lot of talking uh, between Mike Isriatel and the Barbell Medicine guys, uh, Jordan and Michael Ray over there. We've had Michael on the podcast to talk about pain a little bit. Um, one of the things that came up in it that I was wishing I would have kind of interjected and, and gotten the discussion going that way, but there were so many people already. It was like you were almost afraid to like introduce a new tangent because you didn't want to, you want to be respectful of everybody's time. But one of the things that comes up sometimes when it comes to injury risk and training, um, you know, a lot of people wonder how important is technique for injury risk? And I think at the very basic level, of, of course, it's got to be important to some extent, right? I mean, the way we are moving by definition dictates what kind of forces are going to be going across what kind of tissues, okay? So at the very basic level, you'd say, well, of course, to some extent, obviously, technique of movement is going to affect 
injury risk. Sometimes you'll hear people say, no, 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 it's it's all load management. Like you can adapt to any kind of movement technique as long as you manage your load properly. And so I'll hear that sometimes just on, you know, on the internet, people arguing about stuff. The reason that that particular line of thinking needs a little bit of clarification, in my opinion, is because I don't believe you can actually separate those as truly independent factors. So, you know, technique versus training load. The reason I say I don't think you can separate them is because if you go from good, effective, efficient technique that is focusing most of the most of the load, most of the force toward your contracting muscle rather than having it overload a bunch of non-contractile tissues, you know, putting a bunch on the bone joint ligament, etc. You know, if you have really good efficient technique, those contractile tissue the contractile muscle is absorbing a huge, you know, percentage of that force, everything's good, all the other structures are happy. If you then transition to really awful technique, that is extremely inefficient and shifting a lot of that burden, for lack of a better term, in terms of the forces, shifting that toward non-contractile passive tissues, in my opinion, that can turn a very manageable training load into an unmanageable training load because of the way that you are uh, diverting those forces to other non-muscle tissues, if that makes sense. So when, when we talk about having a manageable training load and managing it appropriately, I don't really believe you can separate that from technique because the technique is going to determine exactly how much force is going on to these, uh, these other tissues that could be vulnerable to, to structural damage. And, and so, you know, the, the main point is what is a manageable training load with great technique could become an unmanageable training load with poor technique and movement. And so that's one thing that I don't want people to lose. And I, I would hate for people to view that as a binary thing of is it technique or is it how much load or how much you know training load is occurring there. Um, another thing that came up in the discussion is when and how you should go about troubleshooting technique. So I think a common thing, uh, like Greg, I'm sure most people, when they come to you for training advice, they've been training a while. They have a squat technique and they have a deadlift technique and it might not be picture perfect, right? And so the, the yeah, for sure. So the question is when someone comes in and they're like, well, this is how I've been deadlifting for five years. At what point do you say, well, that's fine, but I want to tweak it. And I think a lot of people, you know, a lot of people do think like every lift has to be picture perfect, like a textbook. And if it's not, then we need to rebuild it from scratch. And I I think that is probably not a great way to go about doing it. If someone is like pretty close to perfect, but there's a little, you know, there could be some improvement here and there, but they're lifting with a great deal of efficiency. They're very strong. There's no pain. There's no like really nasty dysfunctional movement going on. In many cases, you can roll with it. You know, they're pretty much adapted to that technique for them. However, I don't want people to misinterpret that and think that you have to wait until there's pain or dysfunction or an actual major structural issue before you feel comfortable intervening and saying, why don't we try tweaking technique a little bit? You know, so I, again, it's one of those things that I, I think there's been a lot of progress in the lifting world of, of shifting the conversation and saying like, yeah, you, you could have pretty good technique that maybe isn't textbook picture perfect. You can probably adapt to that and lift successfully with it. And that's a good thing. But I, I would I would fear that people who coach others 
sometimes take that a little too far and, and fail to intervene when they could really improve a lifter's technique in a way that's not only likely to minimize their injury risk or allow them to train with a greater overall training load in a safe way. But like if you can make it more efficient, lower injury risk, but also make it more efficient so they're going to perform better. I think sometimes it is okay to intervene and say like, ah, I know you're not in pain right now, but that's pretty rough. And we can probably make that a more efficient lift that if nothing else is going to improve your numbers and actually improve the the quality of our training. Does, yeah, that, does I, that make sense? Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, so I think t- tissues are incredibly adaptable and often much more so than we expect slash give them credit for. Uh, but at the same time, if you don't have to bet on that, maybe you shouldn't. Right. Um, so, you know, for example, if you look at, if you look at a lot of weightlifters and their catch position for a snatch or a clean, you're, you're often going to see, not always. So it, it kind of depends on kind of what country the lifters from and how they're built, but especially with like Russian and Eastern European lifters, you'll often see a very considerable amount of uh, knee valgus and uh, like hip internal rotation, like functional valgus going on, Um, which like, you know, they're fine. Uh, They've been, they've been doing that for decades. They, they don't seem to be tearing their ACL or MCL from doing so. Um, But you know, in weightlifting, the low man wins, and that's how they can get as far under the bar possible, you know, to catch a snatch or a clean and jerk. That doesn't necessarily mean that if you're seeing relatively extreme functional valgus in uh, a recreational lifter when they do their squats, you maybe shouldn't say something about it. Because even though those tissues very well may adapt and they very well may be fine, they also very well may be increasing long-term risk and you don't necessarily want to just bet that, oh, those tissues will adapt and that'll take care of it, um, even though they they very well may. Uh, and like you said, in a lot of cases, um, in a lot of cases, changing w- what seems to be oftentimes what seems to be bad technique, maybe from an injury perspective, is also bad technique from a performance perspective. So. You know, you, you might be taking one step back to take two steps forward from a performance perspective as well. And uh, I, I definitely think that if you can conceivably make a performance-based argument, um, you would be wise to do so, just so you don't potentially nocebo your client. Um, but yeah, I, I I very much agree with everything you just said. Yeah, I, I fully agree. And I, I do think that's even a better way to frame it. You know, like you said... The, of course, the, the tissues could adapt to that, but if you don't have to gamble on it, you know, maybe don't. But but the, the real benefit there is even if it's a potentially injurious uh, technique flaw that may never manifest in a real noticeable injury, usually by cleaning that up, you're going to make it a much stronger lift. And you're also, like I said, you're, you're probably going to open it up to the to the point where you can get away with a greater overall training load without having to worry about that potentially injurious movement becoming injurious. So, I, you know, I, I certainly don't want to um, frame it in a way that any listeners w- would think like, oh, crap, if I don't have a picture perfect squat or deadlift, I'm just 
counting down the days till I sustain an injury. But but I, I do fear, if, like, like you said, that example, you got a brand new lifter that you're coaching that is like pretty, pretty new to lifting. And there are just really noticeable, pretty blatant flaws in the movement that you're like, ah, I don't really like how that works. I would hate for people to overinterpret some of the stuff they hear that's more relevant to really advanced lifters and say, well, if there's no, you know, as long as the bone's not sticking out of the skin, you're supposed to just go with it, I guess. You know, I don't want people to take it that far and and certainly remember that what applies to a really, really advanced lifter who has like slight backgrounding on a deadlift does not necessarily apply to somebody who's just getting into lifting and has like really, really major technique flaws with any particular lift. Like it, it, it's worth it early in a career to take the time to... Like I said, not every lift has to be picture perfect, but we like to at least get it within a functional range that looks pretty solid, pretty efficient, and pretty stable. All right, Greg, to play us out, um, to play us out is basically becoming like Greg's kitchen tips here. So we we got another kitchen tip. Why don't you play us out? And we're going to be, we might even go over three hours for, for all the listeners who have been upset that we're cutting them at two and a half. I mean, this is this is bonus time. Hell yeah, let's do it. So uh, looking back at the cooking tips I'd given so far, I was actually a little shocked that I haven't talked about this yet. Um, however, if you've never heard of sous vide, you've heard about it now and you should look into it. It is amazing for food prep. So what is sous vide? Uh, essentially... It's a French word that I should know the translation of, but I don't, or it's a French term. Don't know the translation, but what it is functionally is uh, you you put your food, generally it's going to be meat, in a bag. You can use vacuum seal bags, but just Ziploc bags work fine. Uh, you submerge that in water, and then there's a heater slash circulator element, which is the piece of it you need to buy, uh, plugs into the wall, And what it's going to do is it's going to heat the water up to your desired temperature and it's going to circulate it to make sure that everything within your cooking vessel stays the same temperature. Um, And so the reason why that is good is that it basically makes sure that you can have perfect temperature control of whatever you're cooking and it helps things stay really, really uh, moist and juicy if especially if it's something that has a tendency to become dry as you cook it, like in the oven or on the stove, uh, in both of those circumstances, you're going to have some degree of water loss from the meat as it cooks. The fibers will contract, force liquid out, but you're also going to have some degree of water loss due to evaporation. And when everything's in a sous vide bag, nothing is evaporating. So it helps lock in the juices a lot better. Um, And so some potential applications for it. Uh, One is, you know, let's say you've baked a lot of chicken breasts in your life. And you're like, yeah, you know, the macros are good. It's not particularly tasty. It can be a little dry at times, but, you know, hey, you got to do what you got to do. You can absolutely make beautiful, delicious baked chicken breasts. Uh, I've talked about brining, I think, on the podcast before, certainly on my Instagram Brining can go a long way to improving the juiciness and texture of white meat chicken. Um, But to make it even easier, you can sous vide those chicken breasts and they're going to come out incredibly. So I think the minimum temperature you want to get chicken up to is like 165. 
if you're and, and so another advantage of sous vide I'll note is that you can sometimes get away with cooking things at a slightly lower temperature than you otherwise would because the way pasteurization works is as temperature gets higher and higher and higher it kills bacteria at an increasingly high rate uh, and so essentially for most things if they get up above 185 190 if they're at that temperature for like three seconds all of the bacteria are dead but you could have otherwise like brought them up to say 150 or 155 for like an hour and that would also do a similarly good job of killing all of the bacteria um and so like one advantage is for something like chicken that you may be used to getting up to 185 190 you can feel a little safer cooking it at a slightly lower temperature which is going to help preserve more juices leaving it there for an hour or two still going to do a good job killing all of the bacteria and then when it comes out it's going to be perfectly cooked if you want to get the flavor from the maillard reaction at that point you can just pat it dry sear it you know only have to sear it super hot for maybe a minute or two you get you know a nice sear on it um, but you don't have to worry about spending a lot of time uh, you know trying to cook it in a pan to get that nice sear and also cooked all the way through um, so generally you wind up with a lot juicier meat really really great texture it's a very time efficient way to cook uh, it's set it and forget it much the same way a crock pot or a slow cooker would be so you know you s stick stuff in the bag you zip it up you walk away you come back it's cooked it's cooked perfectly it's absolutely beautiful you have way more control over it than you do a crock pot or slow cooker uh, and since everything's locked in the bag you're also losing less so you you preserve all of the liquid within the crock pot but not necessarily within the meat like it can still evaporate out of the meat um and just into the crock pot generally whereas that doesn't happen with sous vide it, it's a lot more self-contained um so it's quite convenient as well so if you wanted to go full bore with a sous vide, I know that a lot of people recommend getting vacuum bags and like a vacuum bag sealer unit. You don't have to do that. If you want to just stick your toes in the sous vide water, you can just get a basic, a basic circulator uh, and just use regular Ziploc bags. Something that works really, really well is what's called the water displacement method. Essentially, you just put your meat down in the bag um, Try to squeeze as much of the air out as you can. You don't have to be super particular about it. And just leave the top cracked a little bit. And then submerge the bag down in water, but not up to the point where the crack is. And then the pressure from the water will force essentially all of the air out of the bag. And then, you know, when only the tiny little slit is still above the water, go ahead and close it up. You get a seal. Uh, you get You get air removal that's essentially on par with what you'd get from a vacuum bag sealer. Um, but it's way, way cheaper in that you don't have to buy anything except Ziploc bags. Uh, so I'd recommend that. I haven't priced a circulator in a while. Um, I've been on the sous vide game for a long time. I got my sous vide circulator. It's what I asked for for Christmas in 2014. Um, and so I want to say I was planning on buying one uh, until Santa slash my dad got it for me. Um, but I think at the time they were maybe like a hundred bucks, give or take. So fairly affordable. I think they're still somewhere in that price range. So, you know, it's going to be a significant purchase, but it's probably not going to break the bank for most people. Um, and you'll get a lot of use out of it. Other things you can do with sous vide uh, is one, if you really like 
uh, very collagenous meats and you need to break that collagen down. But, you know, you don't have time to tend a smoker for 12 hours to make sure, you know, it, it goes low and slow well enough. Uh, or maybe you don't particularly like braising in the oven and like how much fat can get drawn out of the meat during the braising process. Sous vide can make just just beautiful, say, beef ribs. Beef ribs are absolutely delicious if they're cooked well, if you have time to break down all of that collagen. Um, it, it's it's just so good. But it's also kind of difficult to do outside of like braising or a slow cooker. You can cook, say, beef ribs sous vide super, super easily. Just, you know, leave them at like 160, 170 for 24 to 48 hours. It's going to break down all of that collagen. They're going to be fall apart tender. Super easy to do. Way easier to do than pretty much any other method, I would say. Um, another benefit of sous vide is, like I said, I'm a big fan of brining meat. You can kind of get a pseudo brine going on with sous vide if you season the meat before you put it in the bag. So, you know, salt it appropriately. Then as it cooks, some of the, the liquid will get drawn out of the meat. It's going to combine with the salt, create a brine, get absorbed back into the meat. So you don't just have salt on the outside of a meat. It's outside of the meat you're cooking, it's going to penetrate it fully. Um, so it gives you good flavor through the entire cut of meat. You know, that's not super crucial if you're cooking something fairly thin, but if you're cooking, say, like a really thick steak uh, or even chicken breast, making sure that you have that seasoning dispersed through the entire the entire hunk of meat uh, is pretty good and clutch. Um, let's see. One. Uh, oh, a, another thing you can do with sous vide, which is actually pretty neat, is uh, you can cook eggs perfectly. And so, for example, if you really like hard-boiled eggs, but you have a tendency to accidentally overcook them, so the yolk starts turning green and kind of icky, uh, I don't remember the exact settings. You can Google it. It's easy enough. Uh, but you can set your, your circulator at the perfect temperature that you can just walk away 30 minutes, you come back, and because the temperature control is so precise, you will have absolutely perfect, flawless hard-boiled eggs. If you like soft-boiled eggs and you like the yolk to be at a very particular type of consistency, maybe you want fully set whites and completely runny yolks, maybe you kind of want like a custardy yolk and doing it in a pot on the stove, you know, the difference between having it in water for five minutes and five minutes and 30 seconds is enough to ruin the egg from your perspective because you don't get the yolk texture you want. Never a problem with sous vide. Uh, you can set it at an exact temperature to get the exact yolk consistency you want. Set it and forget it. Perfect every time. Um, one one problem that some people will have when they first play around with sous vide is you can set it and forget it to a point, and it's a fairly forgiving cooking technique, but you can absolutely leave things cooking for too long. So, for example, if you're trying to make chicken breasts, and you set the water at 165 degrees, and you walk away for an hour, you're going to come back, it's going to be good chicken breast. If you set it for two hours, come back, it's going to be good chicken breast. Three hours, yeah, probably still be fine. If you start cooking it, say, at the beginning of the day, you leave for work, come back eight hours later, it will essentially just turn the chicken breast to mush. Um, so you can 
you can overcook things just because you're leaving something heated for so long. So much of the protein is going to break down. And, it, and like I said, it, it's going it's 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 going to stop having a nice, pleasant bite as meat should uh, and just kind of turn mushy and gross. Um, but it is it is still pretty forgiving. But don't just assume that, hey, I can, you know, put something in tonight and tomorrow morning. It's going to be great for some things. That's the case. Like if it's something with a fair amount of connective tissue like ribs, um, you know, eight to up to 48 hours of cooking can be perfectly awesome. Whereas like if you want to cook steak, um, but you, you know, you, you still want a nice bite to it. Uh, you wouldn't necessarily want to do that. Oh, that's the other like super clutch thing about sous vide. If you want to impress people and you want to make like a perfect rare steak that's heated all the way through. Um, but you know, not like there's not too much of a gray ring around the outside or medium rare or whatever people like, you can do that so easy with sous vide. So you know, if you like your steak at 128 degrees, what you can do is just set the temperature at 125, drop the steaks in, come back hour and a half, two hours later, it's going to be 125 the whole way through. No part of the steak is going to be more than 125. No part's going to be less. All you got to do is pat it dry, get a cast iron pan as hot as it can possibly get, sear for like 30 seconds aside, get a nice crust on it, uh, that'll bring the internal temp up that extra like two, three degrees to get it up to the 128 you want. And it's going to be perfect every time. Super repeatable. Um, so anyway, it, it's it's a fairly flexible kitchen gadget. Uh, it's not super cheap, but you will be able to get a lot of use out of it. And like I said, for I mean, for people who are just into cooking good food, there's a lot of cool shit you can do with it. Oh, another one. Uh I'm just pulling stuff out of my ass right now. Another really cool thing you can do with sous vide, going back to eggs, is if you're someone who's concerned about salmonella uh, from like cookie dough, but you you like cookie dough, uh, if you want to make pasteurized cookie dough at home, you can do it with sous vide because there is a very particular temperature range where you can get the eggs up to, which is going to pasteurize them without actually cooking anything. Like, it's not going to set the white. It's not going to start cooking the yolk. And so you can pasteurize your eggs using sous vide. I think like a hundred and... I think it's like 134 degrees Fahrenheit is the sweet spot. By the way, every temperature I've given up to this point is Fahrenheit. If people are listening to this thinking Celsius and like, oh shit, he's way overcooking his steak. It's all Fahrenheit. Um, but yeah, I think like 134 Fahrenheit, I think is the magic range. Get the eggs there for like 20, 30 minutes, give or take. It should pasteurize them. And then you can make cookie dough with eggs that behave as if they're raw eggs, but there's no bacteria. It's great. Same same thing with the flour. You're not going to sous vide that. You're just going to pop it in the oven at like 350 for 20, 30 minutes. That'll heat it up enough to pasteurize the flour. Um, but yeah, you can use sous vide to make beautiful pasteurized eggs that will behave very, very similarly to raw eggs, uh, but be safe to eat raw. So yeah, very, very versatile. Um, like I said, the biggest benefit for people who are into fitness is very lean, typically not super flavorful cuts of meat. You can cook them perfectly so that they're still super juicy, not overcooked, not dry and stringy. Um, very, very useful kitchen tool that I would strongly recommend to uh, you know anyone who who maybe wants to spice up their food prep a little bit. Yeah, so there you have it. If you want to impress your Valentine's Day date, 
and give them just the perfect meal to celebrate the occasion. Uh, hurry up because you have a lot of work to do in the next uh, day. If you're listening to this, the moment it comes out. All right. Well, that does it for this episode. Uh, as always, thank you for listening and we'll have another one in two weeks. Thanks for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. Now, Greg and I are not experts in medicine or health or really anything else for that matter. So before you make any changes to your diet and exercise habits, make sure you check with a doctor or another healthcare professional. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to support it, visit strongerbyscience.com to check out the products and services that we offer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.